Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft. This conversation was a challenging endeavor, 18 months in the making. For my part, I think it's one of the most profound pieces of intellectual content on the internet. It is in the main a heavy, dense, wide yet piercing dialogue between John Vivekey, the well-renowned and pioneering cognitive scientist, and the philosopher, engineer, and craftsman Forrest Landry, lesser known to public consciousness, but known for his brilliance to those who know. It's a conversation about culture and the meaning crisis, the perilous and toxic dynamics of our culture in the context of a design space for generative response. John titled the dialogue To the Depths for the release on his channel, and that seems appropriate too. Each John and Forrest have appeared on the podcast previously, and this dialogue itself was published on John's YouTube channel several months ago. You can find links to their work in the show notes. So, there is so much I could say about what follows, but this endeavour in the end was about manifesting and gifting something of profound worth to the commons. Where I personally sense incompleteness need not, here at the beginning, find expression. Elements of this recording will be as potent at the end of this decade as they are now, perhaps longer. I know that's a wild thing to say, but I do wonder what world awaits us then. This is no easy listen. It's a bit of work. Well worth it. And thank you very much to all the patrons for your continued support. It means a great deal. For those of you wishing to support the channel and the project more broadly, you can go to patreon.com slash voicecraft. Okay, here we go. We've been speaking for a little while, so I will do a little opening framing here and then open up the space. Part of our conversation today, or in some sense, an angle of its whole, we've sort of discussed as, as perhaps being afforded by an understanding of the meaning crisis from, from all of our perspectives, I think, in, in, a, in a mutually emergent way. But notably, John, this is obviously a core part of your work and framing of life project in many regards, which uh, has touched many people. And I know it's of interest to Forrest to understand what the meaning crisis is with, with, um, with, with as much clarity as possible. And so that's sort of the, the opening question here. Like, what is the meaning crisis? And I suppose its relevance to you and perhaps for us as things are developing at the moment. Even just a single definition would be fine. You don't have to go into re-educating me or anyone else. It's okay. I'm sure there's lots of material out there. Yeah, I don't know if I can give a like a single definition. Um, I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. That's what that's what I can promise. So the meaning crisis starts from a premise about the nature of agency, that an agent is different from a mere behavior, and that an agent ha can determine the consequences of their behavior and alter their behavior in order to seek to promote. And in that some in that sense. With the emergence of agency, you have the emergence of problem solving about trying to modify behavior to improve conditions for some uh, autopoetic entity. So, and that's sort of a core idea. And then, it, uh, and scaling up very quickly, um, the idea is, you know, that we are doing that as agents, we're doing it as cognitive agents, but we're not just very limited domain problem solvers, we're general problem solvers, we can solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. 
So we've developed this capacity for general intelligence. And the basic proposal that I make around that is that that's a dynamically self-organizing process. It's not in the head, but between the head and the environment. And so I, I could refer to a lot of argument from 4E cognitive science and evidence, but I'm just gonna state that, okay? And then the idea is that has to do with a process I call relevance realization out of all the information that's available, zeroing on the relevant, excluding the irrelevant, both within and without and between, uh, right? And so it's incredibly complex. And so we have this incredibly dyna dynamic, uh, complex system, dynamical system that is doing this. And then here's the core idea. It is, you know, it is in a sense, connecting us uh, to ourselves, making us into agents, connecting us to the world as problem solvers. And of course, connecting us to each other because most of our problem solving is done in distributed cognition, not in an individual fashion. So meaning in the sense, not of just semantic meaning, but the meaning making, the sense making that constitutes agency is that sense of connectedness to ourselves, each other and the world. And then here's the, here's the next fundamental premise. The very processes that make us intelligent, these dynamically recursively complex uh, processes of coupling to the environment also make us per perpetually susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior that erodes at the very connections that are constitutive of our agency in the world. And then across cultures and across historical contexts, you see people developing ecologies of practices because this is a dynamically recursive interactive thing. You can't do one-shot interventions, right? You have to do a calm, a dynamical ecology of practices for trying to ameliorate the self-deception and afford and, and enhance the connectedness. And I think the appropriate term for that is not knowledge, but wisdom because knowledge is about overcoming ignorance where wisdom is about overcoming foolishness and self-destructive, self-deceptive behavior is foolishness. And wisdom isn't just knowledge in general, it's knowledge about how to flourish and that's about re-establishing and enhancing these connectedness. So we have these ecologies of practices and they, uh, and they involve interactions with the environment. And these, most of this meaning making is taking place below the propositional level and therefore our access to these other kinds of knowing where most of the meaning making is going is not a theoretical access. It often has to be enacted. It has to be, you, we have to use imaginal practice. We have to use ritual. We have to use transformative processes. We have to acquire skills and virtues, alter a character, et cetera. And then the idea behind this is therefore you have these ecologies of practices and they have a lot of these non-propositional elements and then they have to be honed they have to be homed in a place that ultimately justifies and uh, helps mediate between the individual and the and distributed cognition and between the whole distributed cognitive network and its historical and environmental context. And so you have to have a worldview that attunes people to right, the ecology of practices and legitimates and modifies and curates that ecology of practices. And for a lot of historical reasons that I go to in detail in Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, that the worldview framework, which was almost always a religious framework, has broken down in the West and continues to break down. The increasing, the increasing rate of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S in, in all demographics. Um, and then there's a tremendous number of symptoms of this, increased suicide, 
mental health crisis, loneliness crisis, addiction crisis, uh, you know, the virtual exodus, also positive responses, the mindfulness revolution, the resurrection of ancient uh, uh, philosophical ways of life like stoicism, the, att the attempt, although often misformed, to import Buddhism and Taoism into the West to somehow supplement. All of these are symptoms of the fact that we are in distress. We need the perennial power of wisdom, but we do not have the place in time and space and tradition to go whereby we can cultivate that wisdom. And therefore we fall into two things. We try to, um, we try to deal with the self-deception by distraction and entertainment. And then, you know, we fall into conspirituality of, you know, uh, various forms, or we try to address it and we do it in a fragmented autodidactic form and we, we think we're getting feedback from social media, but it's largely echo chamber. And so we suffer. It's not that it's impossible, but doing things autodidactically, it, it creates a great propensity to exacerbate the very self-deceptive processes we're trying to ameliorate. And that's as succinctly as I can put it. That's what I take to be the meaning crisis. That's where we are right now. Awesome. That was uh, very complete. And I, I liked the, so, so first of all, I want to affirm the, the construction, right? I, I think the construction is sound. I think the, the, the dynamic that you're describing is accurate and correct. Um, Thank you. I think the relevance is clear. Uh, I think the connection between what you're calling the whole dynamic. So if we just take that, that whole dynamic and we call that the meaning crisis, then, you're, then basically the definition would be the meaning crisis is a reference to the whole dynamic. Right, mm -hmm. and and you've articulated the dynamic particularly well, um, and insofar as that is clearly relevant to the world state as it is today and our future progression as a species in an evolutionary sort of way of thinking, and essentially a um, a basis for understanding what sort of mode of address is needed in order to respond to that, mm -hmm. um, I have a set of tools that I would use to first reify the particular dynamic in a way that might make it seem, uh, I wouldn't want to seem that I was being reductive because I'm not intending that. But no, I that, would take it that, that, that in effect, there are uh, ways in which I might clarify the articulation of the underlying dynamics so as to make an essential uh, series of propositions, which results in clarification of the principles and from those principles, a series of actions. That'd be good. So if I could add one more. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to add one more thing as you begin that process of clarification. Sure. Uh, there's a sense of urgency attached to the meaning crisis. It's not, it's not part of the definition of the meaning crisis, but it's this, this. So this is sort of the third fundamental thesis, but it's outside of what the meaning crisis is. It's how the meaning crisis is interacting um, with, you know, what Thomas Bjorkman calls the meta, the meta crisis, uh, the ecological threat, the uh, the, the political ossification and, and, and polarization, uh, the, the wealth, growing wealth disparity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That, that sort of ball of stuff that seems to be interacting. And, and the third thesis is, if the meaning crisis is a wisdom famine, the lack of wisdom significantly incapacitates our capacity to address the medic crisis. And so Agreed. in addition to solving the, the meaning crisis for its own sake, which you just articulated, 
there is an urgent existential or extinction threat for or that we have to address in order by, by solving a meaning crisis. So a, a bold way of putting this is I, I, I propose as a hypothesis that we cannot solve the meta crisis independently from solving the meaning crisis. I would agree with all of the uh, stipulations, propositions and amendments, yeah. just as stated flat out. I mean, I, I would put it in the terms of uh, out of this underlying dynamic, you know, taken collectively, um, that there are the evolution of existential risk, uh, the evolution of um, what we would might call collapse of civilization as a, as a dynamic, um, collapse of ecosystem as a dynamic and so on. Yeah, yes, uh, exactly. So, so and, and, and also I agree with the proposition that uh, it has basically been moving from a chronic phase into an acute phase and that this is therefore making the issue a timely one. Um, yeah, I, I have, I, I don't know that I would, I would go through a lot of effort to add anything to that. I'm, I'm basically at this particular point, like I said, my, my motion would be mostly to, from that acceptance to move into reification mm. and from reification to basically say, here are the places that there is alignment between the, um, the, the, the topology of the problem and the topology of the tool set that I've been using to address problems of this class. Right, right. So in, in, in that particular sense, I can see already that some of the things that you are actually doing and proposing and, and, and trying to make happen in the world are aligned with um, theorems that be the outcome of using that tool set anyway. So I can already know that the thinking that you're doing is, 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 is good, right? I mean, I basically, I can use the tool set that I'm using to identify the key points of, of what it is that you've just described to me and therefore be able to affirm uh, the overall geometry of what you're talking about, but also to be able to affirm what I see the behavior that you're taking actually in the world as a person to try to address this. Well, thank you. That'd be very helpful to hear that back. So um, I guess to sort of begin that process, and, and, and again, this is, this is in an effort to be helpful to you. Okay, so I if I, there's I, places where it seems like you're not understanding what I'm saying, then please just stop me because then it moves into the space of not being helpful. Um, yeah. So, so again, trying to make it more compact, not talking so much about the downstream. Um, there is a, uh, one way to sort of look at it is we can say, okay, there's an agent. The agent has become capable of modeling its relationship to the environment, mm -hmm. modeling mm -hmm. the dynamics of how it operates in relation to the environment, and has moved into a strategic way of doing that, that is unfortunately incomplete to the reality of its relationship to the world. And that therefore we're having lots of side effects because as you said, it there's not enough wisdom in the choice-making basis with which it's creating and using and executing those strategies that are modifying the very dynamic by how it makes sense of the world and also how it's capable of acting in the world. In other words, wisdom would be a corrective measure, but it isn't actually operating in this case because it's become too strategic. Now, again, this is a vast simplification and there no, could be lots of reasons why Wisdom isn't entering into the system, and part of those are the result of system dynamics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, they are partially a result of just the position, evolutionarily speaking, of how our uh, psyche is constructed individually and as a species vis-a-vis -vis the environment we're currently in. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then, of course, part of the reason that it's moving from the um, chronic phase to the acute phase is because of the extreme amplifying effects of technology that are essentially making it so that uh, our strategic choices, which are made from too limited a basis, 
uh, are not just disabling our own sense making, but are having vast consequences well yes, beyond yes. our understanding because the consequences yes. wouldn't have been predicted in advance, aren't included in the strategy, and weren't weren't foreseen in any way at all. Excellent. So, yes. in a sense, the, the the notion here is is is, and I agree with you, is is that we need to move from just understanding how cognition works, how relationships work, how sense and sensibility, how reason emerges, um, both individually and collectively to go from mere understanding the sense of science and technology to, as you say, uh, understanding what is the basis of our choice in terms of our values. Mm -hmm. So one way that I've, in a sense, been clarifying how I think of my own work is to basically say, you know, more collectively than individually, how do we basically think about the relationship between values, knowledge, and action? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so that's, so, so the meaning crisis is essentially a disablement of the right relationship between values, knowledge, and action, and replacing it with the strategic one, the strategic one being too incomplete, too much driven by market forces or uh, prestige or narcissism or any of the other kinds of things that cause people to operate from a point of view which is caring about too little, too locally. They're not... There's not enough altruism in the system to even a, a, appreciate uh, wisdom rather than, say, short-term gains um, taken from too small a point of view that the strategies being executed have long-term consequences and externalization, externalization of risk. So I'm saying all of this mostly to try to convey to you that I understand the dynamics of what you're referring and, and, start, and start to show how I'm constellating these things so that the next level of abstraction becomes available. That's, that's very good. Um, so I've been talking uh, to other people about that, that something very similar to the knowledge action value. Uh, these terms come up. And one of the things uh, that I've been trying to get across is the idea that relevance is actually a nexus between those. Uh, Understood right? and agreed. Yeah. And so, and, and then it's fundamental constitutive nature uh, to agency and to intelligibility um, uh, needs to be uh, better appreciated in both senses of the word. I, 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 also, um, I, I also like the fact that you are like you're trying to uh, orient this in a way that will, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I, mean I, I mean this importantly, like you're paying attention to the intelligibility of this in terms of its applicability beyond the scientific domain. Did, did that correct. make sense what I just said? Yes. Sure. Yeah, and totally I, does. And I, I want to I I say I appreciate that, because while I do not want to abandon the rigor that is found within the scientific enterprise, uh, I'm a scientist, uh, I do not think that science as it is constitutive, as it, as it is constituted now, is the machinery, and I think you're agreeing with me on this, the machinery I'm, that is going to generate what we need in order to get out of this exactly. uh, agency. That, that's part of the reason why. So, so I'm basically agreeing with you and saying that Science and tech can tell us what we can do, but they do not tell us what we should do. So we're yes, distinguishing exactly. between knowledge and value here. And the value is not utilitarian value because that just points no. to what we can do. It's actual value in the sense of what do we care about and how do we bring about that manifestation? But also it's a point or two, and this is part of what you're getting to when you're saying the meaning crisis in general, is that our scope of care is too small. And that yes. we've effectively replaced culture and vision with strategy. And as a result, we're having disablement 
of culture and vision and effectively we're replacing life with death. Now I'm going a little beyond, let me actually, first of all, before you respond yeah, to that, um, oh, no, go ahead. understand that part of what I'm doing here is, is actually uh, very specifically structured. So as a software engineer, basically what I'm used to doing is, um, you know, I come into a project, there's a whole bunch of code in place, it's deployed and they're using it, right? But they need some systematic change, right? They want to add a feature, but that feature doesn't exist within the capacity of the existing system. So right. sometimes if there's a whole constellation of such features and all of them are out of scope, then what I'll need to do is essentially refactor the system to make it possible for the for the new refactored system that still performs the same functions as the old one, but has new points of articulation that allow for new features and new functions to be introduced. So at this particular level, given the nature of uh, the dynamic of how the problem is described, I'm noticing as a kind of consultant, because I'm operating in that way at this moment with you, that we'll need to refactor the dynamic of how we understand the problem a little bit in order to make it possible for us to understand what the nature of the principles are that would allow us to essentially emerge practices that would be an address. So I'm first doing a lot of refactoring. That, that's fantastic. And I just wanna, I just wanna add something um, as an addendum to that, which is a reason for optimism, which is the current work on cognitive development, especially the work of, uh, uh, of Michael Anderson and the circuit reuse and the cognitive exaptation model is that strategy that you just uh, you just proposed looks to be very much like the actual strategy uh, of how the brain operates. So rather than how we have been taught to think of the brain as right, uh, basically a logical program unfolding, the, 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 what the brain is actually doing is very much similar. It's, it's constantly redesigning itself and exacting and reusing circuits like or, or doing something equivalent to a biological. Uh, I'm fully aware of this. Yeah, yeah. Not, right. not many people are. Not many people are. And, and so one of the things, one of the arguments that can be made is, in a very deep sense, we're not proposing something that is foreign to the guts of people's cognitive agency. We're That's actually it. getting them to wake up to what's really going on and reappropriate it in a lived manner. And I think that's a very powerful way of framing this for people, because people are, while well, you're proposing all these new ways of thinking, it's like, not really. In, in, in a, I mean, in some ways, yes, right. But in other ways, we're trying to get you to tap into what we now, what the best science tends to indicate, how the brain best actually operates. So, what there's a possibility of proposing to people that this significant challenge can plausibly met by the optimal kind of processing the brain engages in, and I think that's an important point to make. I am certainly fine and agreeing with that. Um, in the sense of uh, what would be helpful to you now, I mean, as, as, as I said, I can, I can create uh, refactorings that might make some descriptions of the problem more compact. Yes. Uh, so, so in effect, I was, I was refactoring first to do that because that becomes, uh, as you've mentioned, a kind of educational thing. I think that showing that the refactoring process itself is the same sort of dynamics as uh, cognitive structuring is a point that can be made. It's a fairly elaborate one, um, mm -hmm. but it does, as you said, give hope to, to people. Um, but on the other hand, I think that there are uh, lower hanging fruit that might make a lot of this a lot easier. Please. So, so in, in a sense, what we're really looking at, and, and again, this is going to sound like a tremendous simplification, but it's not. Okay. 
That's okay. Right? Of, course, of course, you 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 have my very positive regard and respect. Like, okay. just feel free to as you wish. You you've made it clear that you're not trying to like be dismissive or reductive. I, I accept that. I accept it wholeheartedly. <laughs> okay. Well, um, one of the tools that I that I that I work with essentially is this triple of meaning, value, and purpose. Mm-hmm. So, in a mm-hmm. sense, one way that we can characterize the meaning crisis is that purpose has become so paramount in terms of how we as individuals and as a species operates that it has more or less fully displaced value and meaning. Right? It first resulted in the displace of yep. value. And because of the loss of value, we now no longer have the infrastructure of meaning because the relationship between meaning, value, and purpose in a theoretic sense under axiom one would basically say that um, purpose and value are conjugate and they together create meaning or that Mm -hmm. meaning emerges in both purpose and value. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. meaning is more fundamental, but it shows up in the conjugate relationship between value and purpose. So when we clip value completely and leave only purpose, meaning itself cannot not also suffer. Can I just interrupt there to say that that I think that is brilliant. Um, so you've made very succinctly an argument I've been fashioning very recently because the the obsession with purpose is, is being undermined by the empirical data. Um, so you know, like the, the reduction of all these other things to purpose. Um, it was even showing up in the literature, the experimental literature. But when we actually started doing experimental studies, we were finding that purpose was one of, you know, four factors or three factors, and it wasn't the most important factor. Understood and agreed. And, and yeah. believe me, not only did I predict that, but I also knew that already. Um, oh, okay. Well, it's going to be it's it's going to be a little challenging for me in this particular case because it will be literally impossible for me to surface my background. Yeah. Um, there's there's just there's just not enough time and it wouldn't necessarily help you to just know all that but what I, what I can do is, is I can say okay so this triple of meaning value and purpose although it does very succinctly describe the dynamics at at least the level of uh, understanding why the notion of meaningfulness is entangled and why the notion of strategy is entangled and why the notion of value is entangled it doesn't get to the structure meta structure level that you're talking about when you're saying We've become aware of our own cognitive processes and are now shaping ourselves. So we've entered into a kind of transcendental destabilization because effectively it's like the robot working on itself and Mm -hmm. it doesn't know itself well enough. Mm -hmm. So the changes that it's making are less healthy than the thing that it was previously. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, obviously technology amplifies that even more, but in one sense, the issue is one of transcendental stabilization, which by the way, to put it bluntly, is a motherfucker of an issue, right? And so talking about how to actually work with that requires yet another set of tools that is essentially an adjacent triple that allows us to get a little bit closer to the structure and metastructural aspects because it allows for a cleaner motion from axiom one to axiom two. So in, in regards to that, the second triple that I would introduce in correspondence with the first one is the relationship between vision, culture, and strategy. So in this particular sense, strategy would refer to purpose. Mm -hmm. Vision could potentially refer to either meaningfulness or to value. I would prefer to have it connect to value. Mm -hmm. 
and to have culture connect to meaningfulness. Now I'm setting that particular conjunction up in that specific way, although there are cases in which arguing for the alternate construction might be valid. But for the cases in which we're concerned under the refactorings that we're currently in, the, the, the alignment that I'm describing as preferable is specific. So um, to sort of cement this a little bit, uh, connecting back to say um, microeconomic theory, when we're talking about theory of the firm, part of the reason why the CEO is a specific function is because in order for the organization to have unity, you need to have essentially coherency in all three of those notions specifically, because without that, say you have two strategies, you actually have two separate companies. Say you have two visions, you have two separate companies. You have two cultures, yeah. you have two separate companies. So therefore, in order for it to be one company doing one thing well, it needs to basically be able to have one vision, one culture, and one strategy. Now, while I'm describing it in that sense, so as to make it very clear as to why there would be direct correlations between the structure of some of the concepts that I'm rendering for you and the particular dynamics of what's actually happening at a macroeconomic level and also system-wide in terms of the relationship between man, machine, and nature, it is therefore important for us to actually understand that these concepts are fundamental so that we can essentially see how they translate and project. Um, let me make that, let me back off for that a second and uh, try to bring this down to a level that's more relatable to what you're talking about. That's fine, please. If I were to describe the meaning crisis in terms of the relationship between vision, culture, and strategy, yeah. it's basically that strategy cynically uses vision to manipulate culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and I wanna be very specific about this. Look at how Silicon Valley operates. Like pretty much every business that's emerged from that in the last 20 years, probably even longer. Let's go all the way back to say 90s, okay? Maybe even 80s. In fact, I think pretty much ever since Glass-Steagall was repealed that there's, a, that there's this tremendous bias to essentially have uh, a founder or a CEO or some person that, that basically wants to change the world has a strategy to do so, uses the vision of changing the world as a way of collecting together a community that are believers, that community being the employees, right? The executive team, but mostly the employees. And so they, they use the vision of, you know, say connecting the world as basically being the vision that First, yeah. gathers the, the staff, right? And then acts as a kind of way for coordinating and manipulating what the staff does. Gathering the customers and coordinating, manipulating what the customers do. And so in effect, we're, we're using the vision and the mission statement as a kind of cohering force for the culture, both of the staff, the customers, and then eventually the shareholders, right? But that's part of the strategy. The strategy is essentially to use the vision to first create the culture and then to essentially have that be the organizing basis through which the culture itself uh, is evaluated and metricated and the uh, buyers and the, um, the stockholders are all more or less thinking about the situation, not thinking about the larger dynamics of the situation at all, because they're looking at culture, vision, and strategy from a very myopic point of view rather than from a general one, i.e. with respect to the relationship between man as a species machinery as a technology and um, life systems as nature. So the ecology ends up suffering, man ends up suffering because machine, i.e. the thing which is analog of strategy becomes dominant. By the way, let me so, correspond so. that. Yeah. I know this is a lot to take in. Yeah. If I use the, 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 the key structure of 
again, the triple of man, machine, and nature. Machine corresponds to strategy. Nature obviously corresponds to culture. And vision, uh, you know, basically being the, 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 um, the last one, right? So in that respect, what we're, what we're basically doing is, is we're saying that the notion of the meaning crisis can, in all three of these cases, show up as an imbalance in the relationship between these triples, a subordination of one element in the triple, which is not fundamental as if it was fundamental, displacing the other two. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, in the way Habermas would talk about this, it would basically be that the life world is being dominated by the system. Yes. Right. The system being machine, the life world being nature and humanity taken together. Obviously, he's not doing triples, he's doing pairs. But the idea here is, is that if we were to look at it in the sense of how we would reify the notion of the meaning crisis in terms of the triple of man, machine and nature, machine has become dominant and is extracting from both man and nature. And that is essentially roughly the equivalent of strategy. So if I'm going to use strategy to try to overcome um, the man, machine, and nature triple, or to, you know, try to address the man, machine, and nature triple, I'm already going to be in a failure mode, because it's essentially the same failure mode as the one that was driving the system dynamics in the first place, okay? And so, in effect, we can use axiom one to understand which of these things is more fundamental, actually, to, first of all, and then under axiom three, to have the distinct and separability and non-interchangeableness of the concepts themselves reify so that the connectives between these domains are actually well-structured and we can see this problem using any one of them particularly. But then we can basically say that as far as solution space is concerned, having constructed in this particular way, we can see that it depends upon the flow and sequence in axiom two sense to know whether we're moving in the right direction or the wrong direction. So in this particular case, if we're looking at the um, vision, strategy, and culture thing, if I'm using strategy as the primary entry point, I start with strategy, then I select a vision that is optimal for manipulating a culture. Then I basically, at that point, I have a fixed system and little by little over time, it will die, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's not structured properly in terms of axiom two because it began with strategy. Instead, let's take an alternate vision, okay? Or an alternate world system. Let's say we started with culture first and the culture went through some process that surfaced what its vision was. And through the awareness of what do we want as a species, right? What does the ecosystem want as an ecosystem? Um, you know, that, that we come up, what do we, what do we as a community actually uh, need for conscious sustainable evolution to be realized? And that value system then becomes the basis by which that community coordinates to first develop strategy of action for that community to act. Right? So essentially you have a distributed process of value discovery, a distributed process of knowledge working yeah. right, to create choices, and a distributed process of, of actualization, i.e. Uh, community coherent action that will result in real changes in the world. And that, of course, because the strategy has come out of the yes. community yes. vision yes. matrix is actually going to be a subsumptive strategy that's actually going to be responsive to the needs of the community as a whole, the ecosystem as a whole, the environment as a whole, because it was starting from that process when the values discovery was actually happening, because we weren't presupposing strategy and we weren't presupposing vision. The vision and the strategy, the strategy comes out last. It's not first, it dominates from some sort of top-down sense. It comes out last as a sense of, it emerges from the dynamics of the system and is therefore responsive to the holism of the system as a result. 
So then as the strategy executes and the community learns and develops a new set of knowledge about what it is actually happening in the world, it can become clearer about its visions, become clearer about how to develop and emerge as a community, become stronger as a community, which creates a stronger set of strategies, which have now been reified at a second order. And so the process continues and you end up with a healthy system because we have the right relationship between vision, strategy, and culture, which is the exact opposite of what we're doing literally everywhere in the world today. And this is the essence of the meaning crisis. That, that, was, that was brilliant. Like, I really liked that a lot. Um, uh, let me try and pick up a couple threads of response. I'll start from the more concrete example and work up to the more abstract framework that you, because you moved in that direction. When I think about what you, you point out about, you know, the CEO starting things up. Uh, and so, um, and I think this is convergent what, what you're talking about, whether, you know, uh, the, the way they're doing this and the way they're and they marshaling. It's kind of an inversion of, uh, and other people have noted this. This isn't particular to me. I mean, it's, a, it's very much a para-religious and pseudo-religious organization that's going on because you're not just, you're not just sort of, getting people together to work right you're, you're you're actually getting people you know to you're you're also co-opting their sociability you're co-opting their identity making processes you're making them assume roles you're yeah, giving it's, them it's cynicism taken to the max right it's basically yeah. it's anti-life to every level of it basically it's assuming that a centralized initiation place is essentially going to result in um, some sort of new market the new market's going to have uh, extractionary dynamics, you know, some percentage charge, but because it's a market and it's growing and that percentage is charged on every transaction in the market, that the more we can create fungibility and efficiency and market dynamic velocity, that the larger there's going to be a flow in an exponential sense towards the initiator yeah. of the system. And so as a result, there's this huge incentive to take advantage of ambient forces to create parasitic process that will result yeah. in huge outsized gains for the investors and, and, the, and the shareholders potentially. Right. I, I totally agree with that. I, and what I was pointing out was um, that the, the, it's pseudo-religious and para-religious, and this adds to the cynicism. That's what, I, what I'm trying to say. The pseudo-religious and para-religious aspect of it actually masks, does not solve, more like symptom suppression, the, the hunger for the legitimate religious kinds of and cultural kinds of behaviors that people undergo when they're transforming their identity, transforming their sociability, coordinating their efforts, committing to a bigger- it's, it's, it's taking the natural impulses towards life and it's turning them into some sort of extractionary tactic, which is effectively yes. a, a death impulse, right? And so in, in, in a sense here, what we're, what we're looking at is essentially a co-option of the natural processes towards an artificial one that itself isn't furthering. I mean, in the fundamental sense of that, which does not further, it doesn't further. It only basically moves it, you know, for that individual or for the initial team and founders. And that's it for everything else. After that, it's all cost. I agree. And then the, and then the second point, the more the, the larger point, uh, which is a normative response, like you're basically saying we shouldn't be doing this and, and in a powerful way. And, and the basis of the argument is, well, right there with the fundamental, the ontology no is other as long as they can convince you that there's no alternative, the market system is the way that it is, we're powerless to do anything about it, learned helplessness is the best answer. You know, those are all part of the cynicism of the strategy to basically maintain the hold, right? So in effect, you know, to the more that people are basically saying this can't be solved. Now, to be honest about this, uh, when I was first brought into this particular dynamic of thinking about this somewhere down in uh, 2014, now, by the way, I've been working on these issues since the 80s, but the main thing is, is that 
I hadn't necessarily like like after about uh, my, my first process was in understanding the relationship between the subjective and the objective and really getting the tool set, which, by the way, that's where all these tools come from. That from understanding that dynamic fundamentally and well, that it essentially was something, okay, here's how I can enable individuals to make better choices. So my initial presentation was the fundamental theory of the, of the, of the dynamic. And then, fun, and then um, finally, like around 2002 or whatever, um, how that dynamic could be applied to help individual choices. So that's the um, foundations book and the uh, effective choice book, respectively. But then, you know, after about 10 years, I got asked this question, you know, is there a way to basically solve this 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 meta crisis problem? And it was presented uh, in a, in, a, in a number of different ways. And that's at a certain point, you know, I I spent a long time diagnosing what precisely is going on, what happened here, right? So I'm now using these tools to essentially analyze the fundamental dynamic of uh, the meta crisis. And um, obviously, with that, I get an understanding of the meaning crisis, the way you're describing it. But one way to sort of describe succinctly why there's a sense of learned helplessness is actually, you know, my firsthand experience was, okay, so you're asking me to come up with an architecture for social choice making that is in the field of action where the participants are basically predators, right? And again, I'm saying that from a biological level, not from some sort of evaluative thing, but, you know, our eyeballs are forward facing rather than side to side. We have the kind of teeth to be omnivores. Uh, our, our physical construct, construction is designed for endurance, but also for speed. And so in effect, you know, we're not pure predators, but we're more oriented towards predatorship than not, right? We're higher on the food chain in that sense. Um, so on one hand, you, you take that and you say, okay, so we're, we're, because we need to do good system design, we have to basically design it as if people were perfectly predators. Okay, so that's the ingredients. Those are the tools you have. And then on the other end of it, at the other spectrum, it's technology is toxic. And you know, this was a point that was made uh, a long while ago, and, and it, it took me probably two solid years to convince Daniel that of, of the truth of that assertion. But it's at this point now something has been established in this and, and, and conveyed really well. So if the ingredients you're working with is we want to solve the meta crisis, but the, but the things you have to start with are perfected predators and perfected toxicity. And these are the things you essentially are working with. I'm saying, wow, you, know, you want me to get something through that goalpost? Right. You know, to, to, to get a ball through that space, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. But after a few years of analyzing the problem, I figured out that there was a way to apply Axiom 2 to essentially change the dynamic of the situation at a fundamental level by converting the question. It's not so one that it was in the field, but essentially there was a point that was above it and below it. Mm-hmm. And that on that third axis, I was able to construct something that does actually go through the middle. Um, but it took me three solid years to construct even a proof of the capacity for there to be a solution. At that point, I had proof of existence. I still no idea what the solution was. So, you know, thinking of the tool set that I'm working with and the kinds of things that I'm talking about, it's not hard for me to believe that 99.99% of the observers in this field are basically looking at this and saying, there's no other solution. There's what we've got, and we've got to figure out some way to muddle along with this and try to compensate for the worst successes and so on and so forth. Whereas at this particular point, I'm coming before you and I'm saying, no, we can do way better than that. In fact, there's a way of thinking about this problem that not only is a solution, but is necessary to be understood as a solution insofar as it doesn't necessarily lead us into that learned helplessness and it allows us to look at this whole problem in a completely different way, which is why when I was describing it in terms of vision, culture, and strategy and the ways in which those are currently lined up, 
that refactoring allows us to say, what if we resequence? And instead of starting with strategy, we start with community. And then when we look at the architecture of civilization, we basically say, okay, what does civilization consist of? Well, on one hand, it consists of civility. On another hand, it consists of cities, right? By the way, that's a third triple. Cities, city, cities civility, and uh, civilization is a, is a bound triple. So if I'm basically looking at, okay, what is the structure of the, of the kinds of things? So I have you know, ecology and out of ecology emerges, emerges some sort of humanity, out of humanity and the value systems that that has, uh, you know, the cultural elements emerges infrastructure and out of the infrastructure emerges finance and finance effectively starts displacing the ecology. And of course that's the problem, right? That's your meta crisis all over again. And so now we have people that are optimizing what's happening at the financial level and is starting to drive what's happening at the infrastructure level and therefore to drive what's happening at the cultural level. And when we start to see things happening at the cultural level that are unstable, the, uh, the tower, the, the, the you know, Jenga tower of blocks starts to, to look a little, little, uh, little less stable, right? So in effect, what happens is we're saying, wow, that tangle, that Jenga pile isn't looking so good. We're piling higher and higher, but the blocks are coming from down below and they're starting to drive which of these blocks are coming out. And this isn't any good at all. So in effect, we have to actually recognize the culture is primary. It's deeper in the stack than infrastructure, which in this sense would correspond to machinery and um, the value systems in the sense, which would correspond to what has used to be human values, but has now become uh, financial values. And that because we have a mistaken notion of what value means, we're not making very good choices as far as what our strategies are, and therefore we're degrading the infrastructure and the culture. I, I, that uh, that that was um, uh, that was excellent amplification. Uh, the, the, the the point you ended on was the the point I was uh, I was actually moving towards uh, expressing appreciation for the idea that the the, the primacy of culture. Um, and, and a proper understanding of that. And then, you know, and then the vision, without a vision, the people perish. And then on top of that, your particular strategies. And you can even see this at work, you know, in analogs within simpler, problem solving. It's even simpler to that. Without the people, the people perish. Okay? <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, the vision wants to emerge before the strategy, for sure. But as a result, we now have to have the culture of people because the wrong dynamic, it's like this big wheel and, and at this point, there's so much momentum behind that wheel. And everybody who's been steeped in the lives of the world of the, the particular progression of strategy first have effectively become so inured with that strategy because look at how successful it's made us all, right? And now in effect, we're basically saying, okay, that, that particular thing got us here, but it won't get us there. And to get no, there- it's gonna, make work. it's gonna make things worse. Of course and, it is. And- so guys, can we take a pause here real quick? Um, and that's just because uh, there's, a, there's a couple things. Um, one thing is I'd like to hear um, John sort of offer a kind of a full response in, in terms of what's been, what's been present so far. So we get the, the entirety of that other angle. Um, and uh, well, then the intention it, behind my presentation was to see whether or not there was coherence. So in other words, I'm refactoring. So it's not so much that I'm looking for a response as as it as a change, so much as does this map? Yeah, and I, I, I that's what I wanted to try and, and articulate in ways in which I think it maps onto um, both propositions and projects that I'm currently engaged in. Um, maybe that's what you're asking for, Tim. I don't know. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the projects that lines up, uh, but I will say it doesn't have the, uh, the same clarity and depth of articulation that you just provided is a project that I call Stealing the Culture, which is the idea of not trying to change this at the level of policy or strategy, the political level, or, or trying to solve it technologically or, or, or economically, but we have to go down. And, and the model I use is the way that Christianity changed the Roman Empire. It didn't change it through political revolution, economic revival, technological innovation. It basically created subcultures that worked from the bottom up to fundamentally change uh, the Roman Empire. That's the model. Uh, and it doesn't, right? It, 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 and That's as you said- correct. Yeah. Yes. And so, and so we're, we're comp- you're, you're putting into action precisely what I'm describing needs to be done. But I would yes, want to make some amendments at this point, right? Yeah. Because so essentially we've handled the first order effects, but now we need to start compensating for second order effects. So in difference to the way that um, communities of culture in the Roman empire would operate, we've now at this particular point emerged at a level of strategy awareness such that people knowing that this is the basis would therefore seek to create cultures and religions with a secret strategy running on the yes. inside of that, yes. right? Yes. So you end yes. up with yes. escape valves written on the inside or possession of high territory in domains of action, which nobody else noticed until obviously it becomes an issue, right? Yes. So, you know, the whole surveillance capitalism thing, for example, emerged out of the system dynamics associated with technology. Nobody predicted that. But on the other hand, it was definitely emerging. And when it did emerge, it became the new capture territory, which is part of the reason why some systems emerged as being dominant and others didn't because some people noticed the strategy of, hey, we can capture value systems. And by capturing social value systems, we can create more capacity within our strategies within an economic system. So now all of a sudden, although it started from a religious impulse, it ended up being co-opted by a strategic one, although people didn't notice that that was happening because they weren't sufficiently aware in the population the same way that the uh, the, the movers and shakers, the social leaders were aware as a subset of the population. So essentially because the future didn't arrive evenly, the people that had more access to the knowledge of how to basically be uh, savvy about how to think about social dynamics ended up getting ahead of the curve and therefore dominating the system, even though it didn't look like that was going on because the strategy was covert. I agree. And there's uh, there's been some very good historical work about how Techniques from Renaissance magic were taken into advertising, and 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 and, and, and very much this kind of, uh, of, of of sort of crypto religious uh, move that was made. Um, so part of the way I've tried to respond to that um, is to try to uh, get to the fundamental interactions, both intrapsychically and uh, interpsychically, uh, cognitively, uh, in which the fundamental reverence for emerging logos happening online uh, as, as free from surveillance, as you put it, surveillance capitalism as possible, getting totally free is almost impossible right now. But that's, that's very much what the whole Dialogos project is about. It's about trying to get people into an experiential remembering of what the fundamental meaning making, relevance realization um, and reverence for that process is like such that they can remember and taste what it is like 
to experience it authentically or as, as authentically as possible, removed from market forces, market ideology, technological uh, uh, of subsumption, things like that. That's what, so it's very much where the this is where we're going to see the first divergence. So everything that's happened up until this particular point was essentially first alignment. In this particular case, I'm saying yes to what you're saying, but I'm saying there's a piece missing. Hmm. So at this point, I would say that if it were to just be the case that people were to, uh, to, to be moving into just an experiential sense, they would, while gaining something in the sense of the wisdom that could emerge out of the experiential sense, don't underestimate the degree to which other people noticing that this is happening would therefore use their increased differential understanding because they happen to be smarter or more enabled or more empowered in one fashion or another to effectively, uh, you know, it's like if I say to you, hey, uh, rather than thinking about this, I want you to feel it. And then while you're feeling it, I use the tool of thinking to manipulate you because you're not looking at it from a cognitive point of view. You're looking at it from an embodied one. It's like the new age movement being anti-intellectual means that the intellectuals, the true intellectuals have just figured out another way to uh, create value extraction because everyone else wasn't paying attention. They're busy basically having a firsthand meditative experience. Or if I um, have an emphasis in a system where people are focusing on Buddhist values of deconstructing the self, then the handful of narcissists, which are basically saying, ah, that's cool. While you guys are all deconstructing yourself, I'm going to reify my construction and then be in place when you're reconstructing yourselves to make you in my image. Now that of course would mean that we've just disadvantaged them because we've in a sense by emphasizing one thing made it easier for the pendulum to swing the other way, but not freely, but in a constrained way because the constraints weren't observed. So in order to compensate for this, there's, there's a couple of specific things that I would recommend. One is, is that we need to educate people to become sensitive to these kinds of dynamics, right? So. Uh, Narsocial mm -hmm. phenomena, for example, needs to be noticed, not collectively, um, you know, in the sense of, you know, some sort of shaming act, but, but, but in the sense of discernment to basically saying, yes, I want to have the full hand religious experience, but I don't want to be dominated by some uh, guru who's basically going to tell me uh, what I should think and how I should act when I'm in my especially most vulnerable space and my cognitive things have been, in a sense, temporarily displaced in terms of uh, firsthand experience. So in other words, the that, trust is part of the that? That, that, that is part of the educational framework. Uh, like we don't, we, we like part, you take people through this process of increased self-awareness, you get them to become aware of this, you get them to understand that, it, that they're, if they're seeking dominance or victory, that's going to be called out. Like there's a lot of stuff you do to try and make people understand uh, exactly that 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 propensity and that where danger. does discernment show up in the process so that one person can notice when they have basically been in a context which has been set up to disadvantage them so what happens is a very i mean there's a discernment process you have to educate people in because there's a phenomenological marker of when the we space the geist gets shattered and things focus on a particular are being focused on a particular individual in sort of an ongoing fashion and you can train people to notice that, so the we space doesn't belong to anybody in particular. And that's in fact, it's important normative aspect. And when that gets broken, people can sense that somebody's trying to do that. And so, and you give people some, it's not an exhaustive definition, but you give people things like, if somebody's trying to get you to do therapy on them or somebody's trying to recommend or somebody's trying to correct, like then, then you know, you give them 
they're, cri they're criteria, they're not definitions, but they're criteria by which you get people to look for, well, what's, what's helping everybody to enrich the Wii space and what are people doing that is actually breaking it? And, and, and the advantage of that is it's not just something that you apply conceptually, you can get a, a very felt sense, a phenomenological marker of, whoa, that's, that's shifted in a way. Uh, and we're, we're with the, the, you know, we've lost the spirit of the situation. And because it is so dynamically emergent, you can't come into it with, oh, I'm going to have these techniques of manipulation, because it's not a finite game. It's an infinite game. People are changing, right, uh, the parameters as they're engaging in the practice. So it's, it's very much in that. Very good. Go ahead. I mean, for, first of all, uh, I stand corrected. You've, add, you've added the correction I would have required. Um, the, the next piece that I would, I would, I would ask to see if you're, if you're implementing um, knowing that there is now a causative relationship between uh, behavioral dynamics that could result in a breaking of the field, as you describe it, yeah. that the uh, process of manipulating the field strength could itself become some sort of uh, vector by which strategy could emerge. So, for example, um, say I have, uh, okay, I'll make a contrived example. All right. Obviously, rape is bad, right? Okay. Yeah. So. You, you set up some sort of legal system that basically says that if somebody makes an accusation of rape, that it's gonna be taken seriously and lots of stuff will happen. But then a second order effect emerges. Sometimes, not very often, but sometimes people will claim rape even though there wasn't actually a rape. And therefore right. the defendant now has to go through a lot of effort to defend themselves. And of course, it's hard to prove that something didn't happen uh, versus something did. And so now they're on the defensive and they have to expend all sorts of time and effort and reputational loss. Uh, because of the accusation. So then you say, well, how do we correct the second order effect? Well, let's put a third order effect in. Um, if it turns out that you've made an accusation of rape, but it was a false rape, it's a, it's a false accusation. It was designed to disadvantage the thing and you get caught, then there's going to be you know, sanctions applied to the person making the false accusation. So in effect, now you can basically say, well, if I was a good strategist, I would figure out a way to make it seem that someone was making a false accusation so that they would then be subject to the punishment, right? At right. the third order. So now there's a fourth order, right? So, so in effect, one of the things that's, that's happening here is, is that the, the notion of how to detect when things are um, entering into these sorts of arms races, because that's what it is. It's a model of an arms race, right? You have essentially uh, strategy now in some sort of contest or at least some subgroup, or maybe a, a particularly narcissistic individual, you know, some psychopath or something, who's who's basically trying to figure out how to take possession of the group using causal processes. And so, if you train the group to become uh, aware of anything that breaks the field, then now all of a sudden any individual can make the threat. You know, if you do that, you'll break the field, and so therefore, what you would be tending to do is therefore bad. And now we can label you, and you'll lose social credit with respect to the group because of this. Right? One way or another, I'm always going to be able to construct a second and a third order effect and build an arms race. Right? So now the question becomes, how do we prevent arms races? What is the fundamental dynamic here? So again, I'm going to shift gears, and I'm going to make another. Uh, another correspondence, because that's, again, the tool set we're working with, right? In order to solve these problems, we have to refactor a little bit. Uh, so a, a triple that shows up in this space is simplicity, complexity, and clarity. That's, again, it's a bound triple. Um, you may be wondering why I'm emphasizing bound triples so much. Once something's established as a bound triple, it means that it's subject to the axioms. And once it's subject to the axioms, we can assure proofs of closure. So for instance, if we're trying to solve a problem, the first thing we have to do is to identify what are the necessary characteristics of the solution, 
But in some way along the way, the proof that, a, that, that makes a demonstration that something's necessary to solution isn't itself a proof that you have a solution because you might not have all necessary things. So then the second thing becomes, what is sufficient to a solution? Have I included all the necessary ingredients? So in effect, in that particular case, a proof of sufficiency, by the way, has a completely different proof geometry, uses totally different methodologies and techniques than a proof of sufficiency of, a, I'm sorry, of necessity of a specific thing, right? And oh, by the way, somewhere along the way, um, sufficient to solve the problem isn't enough either because we actually need to solve something called comprehensiveness, i.e. not that it solves a problem that we know about, but it solves all of the problems of that class, including the ones we don't know about. So in other words, does it have closure? Like if I was to take and do exaption where I take the ingredients of the existing governance system and I try to make them into some sort of hybrid new government system, but the exaption itself uh, wasn't complete. Like there was some things that uh, I threw the baby out with the bathwater because I thought that something that was bad, uh, you know, was entangled with other stuff that was good, but I didn't know that. So I threw away the good parts too. In order for us to show comprehensiveness, we need yet a third proof structure that basically says, we can know for certain that the things that we're trying to address, that the questions that we're asking were actually the right questions, i.e. did we characterize the problem correctly? So identifying the structure of the ways in which we can establish necess I'm sorry, uh, necessity, sufficiency, and comprehensiveness, um, the tool set that is needed for those things is three separate tools, but they themselves are about triple. So we end up with the kind of closure over the methodologies by which we come up with solutions to big, hairy, audacious problems. Which brings us back to the triple of simplicity, uh, complexity, and clarity. One of the things we notice immediately under axiom one is that simplicity and complexity, and well, that these three things are distinct, inseparable, and non-interchangeable, that therefore the notion of simplicity and clarity are distinct. They are not the same. Most people confuse those two. It becomes relevant because when we're looking at an arms race situation, what you end up with is a situation where people try to address complicated situations using higher levels of complexity, right? They're, they're going to try obviating the difference between complex and complicated at the moment, although I know that's a distinction as per Dave Snowden, which, by the way, I like his work. But the main thing is, is that if we're getting to a place where we're saying, okay, a person's created a complicated way to manipulate a social group. So what we're going to do is we're going to add another rule or another law or another thing. We're going to create a more complicated scenario that effectively is going to try to address the previous thing. But then we notice that the causal structure of that thing, the very fact that it's a rule and therefore it has inputs and outputs and a logical construction, a causative one, basically means that someone else is going to be able to use their choices to manipulate the causation and therefore weaponize that so as to essentially shift the agency and the capacities of some group versus some other group or some person relative to a, to a collective. And yes. so in effect, in order to address that, we have to actually notice when we're using complexity to try to address complexity because expanding the complexity field continuously, which is what we mostly do with technology, means that the machine's gonna win and we're just exasperating the situation, which is the fundamental dynamic of the meaningful problem or the meta problem in the first place, right? So in a sense, what I'm describing here is that in order for us to move forward into a meta solution for the meta solution, we have to in effect address that an arms race is always gonna be termed in complexity. How do we clear that? The solution for complexity is clarity, not simplicity. Most people think that when we're looking at a complicated problem that we need to move to a simpler state. Let's go back to tribal things 
Let's try to do things the way they were before in history. That clearly worked. Surely we can do that again, except that they don't notice that because we have technology and everybody has become so much more savvy with respect to social system design, how cognition works, how the mind works. We're creating machines that are intelligent. We're starting to affect the dynamics and the system dynamics of the ecosystem itself. And we don't necessarily have the value systems that go with the holism of that, right? Again, becomes a problem of wisdom. What is the nature that makes wisdom distinct from intelligence, right? So in effect, what I'm saying here is that wisdom has the quality of creating clarity, whereas intelligence would have only the quality of creating more complexity. So it's not so much that I'm trying to, to say, yeah. hey, this is a necessary thing. I'm saying, here are the kinds of things that allow us to merge past necessity into sufficiency and set up for comprehensiveness. So in effect, when I'm, when I'm working and engaging with your particular work, I see that you've characterized the problem well, and now I'm trying to use some of the tools that I have in order to help you move through what I think are downstream dynamics from where you currently are. So I, I, um, again, I think that's, I don't know if there's divergence there uh, or not, uh, like you said, uh, because I mean, I, I, I did a, a work on this way back on my thesis on trying to distinguish intelligence, rationality, and wisdom um, and, and it's the infinite regressive rule problem, right? Whenever you, which you did with your, the court case, right? And the problem is, I mean, I have a different sort of argument. The problem is no rule can specify its, 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 its conditions of application because then you have to make a rule for when you're gonna apply the rule and how you're gonna apply. I use the example of what it is, what does it mean to, I give you the rule, be kind. Well, it doesn't mean the same thing to my, how I behave to my son, how I behave to my romantic partner, how I behave to a stranger. Right. And so and then there I'm going to have to have rules upon rules upon rules. Right. And so, Understood. Where did you go with that? So the, the way I went with that was, was which was way back to Brown's book on rationality was and this is Wittgenstein's argument. And I think Brown is right. It's actually Aristotle's argument, but I would go stronger. I think it's actually Socrates's argument <laughs> is you can't ultimately capture that. Uh, you can't capture wisdom and rules. You, right. And so you can't ultimately legislate. So the whole right. point about the dialogos is that it is always Socratic in that the dialogos is always about virtue, right? And, and not as something that we're going to define or make rules about, but it's about trying to get people into the act of cultivating wisdom within the very practice itself. So that the practice is putting into itself the tutoring of people in wisdom so that they can start to, as you said, I think quite accurately, bring good judgment and discernment I would say enhanced relevance realization to bear on somebody who's using, you know, manipulative strategies of intelligence. This is basically Plato's drama of the conflict between Socrates and the sophists who try to use sophisticated intelligence and technical definition to manipulate people. And that's the act. So I saw that drama as the place in which Plato is trying to recommend, not in any theory, because you can't, but in like, and I don't mean like, I mean like in, in some kind of set of rules, he's actually trying to dramatize the practice that will be the solution to that problem. And of course he presents it as a, itself a practice that is continually self-correcting because as the members become wiser in the practice, they deploy the practice more wisely. So that is how I've tried to configure it. Um, that sounds good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That that brings some relief to my, uh, I, I, that, that, that's, that's extremely encouraging. And I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, let me, 
uh, clarify the question a little bit and just go horizontally to just make sure that, yeah. that, that yeah. there's there's strength in that. Um, so you, you you mentioned practice and and the practice being a practice of wisdom and 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 I see this in, as 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 being a good thing. Like just just flat out, let's just leave that as yeah. a good thing. Um, there is a triple here that applies in the relationship. You mentioned rules and you mentioned practices, and I'm mentioning principles. So yes. principles, yeah. practices, and rules are themselves, guess what, a bound triple, right? Yeah. And so in effect, what we're, um, this, is, this is part of, uh, I've, I've been hearing uh, intonations of the, the, the difference between Tantra and Sutra, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, in this particular case, although uh, most of my actual action happens to be in the form of writing, so you know, there's your Sutra part. Um, yeah. But but my my actual preferences for the tantra side of things, right? So yes. and and so in effect, I'm going to characterize tantra in a very specific way. I'm going to basically say that um, the the people who are the shamans and 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 the sort of uh, outcasts of society, uh, who, who are the edge walkers, so to speak, who kind of see between the worlds and so on and so forth, um, they they are the ones that notice over time that the rules, which are unchanging, right, because they're based upon some sort of sutra. Um, the world changes, but the rules don't. And so the complicated series of rules plus the arms race, it makes them more so, right? Um, and all the strategy, manipulative tactics that would encourage people to make even more rules so that they can create more uh, causal structures with which they can manipulate the world and so on. But the yeah. dynamic here is, is that over time, the rules become less and less useful and adaptive to the context in which the people live. And if the function of government is to actually protect the land and the people, at some point, the rules aren't helping. So um, at that point, you have to fall back to something. What do you fall back to? You fall back to principles. Where did the mm -hmm. rules come from? What were the reasons in the sense of values that, 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 that we even did this in the first place? Like, what the hell did all this come from? What do we really care about? What really matters? Okay, so meaningfulness yeah. and care and, and some sort of, um, you know, review of what the social contract is, is, is up, right? And so in effect, what we, what we find ourselves doing is, coming into, okay, shit is fucked up. Look, see, and tell the truth because this is the sense-making we need to do and the process by which we need to do it. I mean, again, talking classically here um, before you know the sense-making process itself got messed up, but we'll treat that as a separate thing in a moment. The idea here is, is that I come back to the principles and from those principles, I create new practices and I do the practices and I do yes, the practices yes. to help identify the principles and the principles to help identify the practices. And I go back and forth between principles and practices. By the way, that's the triple we're interested in. And when we get to the um, stabilization of practices that work, that mirror our values, that actually implement uh, an underlying meaningfulness in life, people feel comfortable again, then what ends up happening is, is that over time, simplifications happen, right? Remember the triple of uh, simplicity, complexity, clarity. Well, under axiom two, the next thing after clarity would be simplicity. And after simplicity comes complexity. And oh, by the way, round and round and round we go. But it needs to be in that sequence and order because if it isn't that particular way, quite frankly, we're fucked. So in a sense, what we're getting to here is, is that if we're looking at the dynamic of practices as being the way in which you are essentially bringing this out into the world, is there some architecture of principles that allows you to clarify and articulate the essential ingredients of this such that yeah. wisdom lives in the clarity and that in yeah. that particular yeah. process we can now have a kind of self-governance principle that allows us to implement more practices at a collective level that essentially evade the 
retreat into rules, which is essentially what most people are going to want to do. So I think that's very well said. Um, and uh, it, it aligns with, um, but I think you have uh, articulated it perhaps more clearly than I have. Um, it aligns with the, the, the idea, again, that I get from the platonic drama, which is, right, the, 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 the movement to principle is, is, is you know, the, 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 the platonic, you know, ascent to the, to the good. Because the good is, right, the good is properly understood as the, as the, as the source, the existing good, source. Good, true, and beautiful. Yes, a exactly. Good, yes, true, exactly. and beautiful is a principle, right? They go together. But the good in Plato actually stands for the good, the true, and the beautiful. It, it's just he chose that term because it was the most sort of normatively apparent, Understood. right? Understood. And so yep. in trying to get, uh, right, and so for me, I, I talk about virtue as the beauty of wisdom. I see every, I, this is, again, a Socratic idea, that each virtue is just a way of trying to be wise in a situation, but it's a way of trying to do this movement, right, between you know re, the the return to to the to the good the principle and the the sophia right that's one word for wisdom and then the phronesis the the application into practice and that wisdom is properly understood as facilitating and helping people to do these movements in a coordinated manner both within themselves and and, and with others and so that's part of what the nature of the practice is about so we talk we talk about like the two dimensions of dialogos, the horizontal dimension between people and the vertical dimension that you and I are just talking about right now and properly becoming aware of them and of the relationship between them in practice and awareness and in their own attempts to discuss and reflect upon it. So that's awesome. all, that, yeah. That's good to hear. When we're talking about the vertical, we're talking two kinds of vertical, vertical mm -hmm. to self and vertical to world. Yes, yes. Okay, so in, in interior connection to essentially become clearer about one's values and exterior connection to world, not to other people, but yes. to world in the sense of, you know, the physical chair you're sitting in or your capacity to do pottery or woodworking yes. or blacksmithing yes. or, you know, your yes. ability to drive a car or, or all the kinds of things or a bicycle or whatever. That, that so first, you'll be happy to know that I, I introduce people to that by doing the Neoplatonic a contemplative practice where you take people through the scales of intelligibility. So they start to get aware of phusis into suke, into noesis, into, you know, henos. And they, so they get, they don't just get a, a bunch of ideas. They actually feel themselves moving and they can feel the corresponding change between their sense of the world and their sense of themselves when they're doing that. They have to learn that before they can even engage in the dialogical practice. Okay. We're moving quickly then. So, um, in this particular sense, leaving all that as good, I'm just going to yeah. call that and just basically say at this point, we've had a, a point of arrival and I see two more steps that I, that I would at least think might be um, relevant in, 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 in fielding some of this. Uh, one of them is, is that somewhere along the way, we need to account for momentum calculations. And then the other one, we're basically looking at the transition from individual process to community process. Yes, so those are yes. the two next steps that I would like to make. I can, I, I, I'm can just going to do them in sequence. Yeah, 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 please. Um, so given that we have articulated both a uh, common understanding of the nature of the problem and both uh, kind of referred to, and, and you in practice actually, um, how a, a response to the problem, which is at this point, uh, I, I would say is a good and solid response, has the right ingredients, looks good to me. So in that sense, um, 
in what way well, do you help people? for us or yeah. just want I just want to say thank you for saying that yeah like that, mean, that, that that's meaningful to me thank you you're welcome well i just ran you through the ringer to get there so <laughs> the very least i could do is say cool <laughs> um and 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 by the way i mean you know part of the reason that i'm i'm going kind of hard and fast here is because uh it's not often i get to to, to, to basically do these kinds of validations and because this is impactful. And it's mm -hmm. now at this particular sense, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of saying, hey, this is a real thing that you're doing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not only supportive of it, but now I'm, I'm actually invested in it, right? So I'm basically saying, hey, by the way, I really wanna make sure this works because it's got all the right ingredients and therefore, you know, I'm, it's, it's now becoming uh, a test of work, not just for yourself, but also of mine. So, mm -hmm. In, in, in this sense, the, 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 the momentum calculation piece. So um, at an individual level, like, like it sounds like in, in one sense, I could characterize it as you've put together a really well thought out and comprehensive educational program for individuals to participate in and essentially mm -hmm. just actually live better lives, right? Whatever that means. Now, mm -hmm. um, leaving that as, 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 a, as, a, as a process, obviously people go back into their lives after having had this experience and having had this education, yeah. in what ways are you currently able to help people to notice when they're slipping back into strategy first habits? Yeah, yeah. So, how, how do the, you know, given that they're living in an insane world, mm -hmm, they've mm -hmm. experienced sanity for a brief time or a practice that would, for at least some of them, most of the time probably help to moved into at least an awareness of what sanity looks like, but then they drop back into the pool of, well, I should say cesspool of, you know, what is quote unquote, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna say very cynically, uh, real trademark life, right? Um, what, what is, is, is there a thing that you've been able to do in this space? And if the answer is no, that's okay. I just wanna know that. Yeah, so, I mean, not very much. Um, so I've been trying to get, you know, so I'm doing, and I, I don't, and I don't mean this to sound manipulative, uh, but you know, I, I'm trying to do something with a, a Discord server that has arisen around the ecology of practice and try to see what is it like to build. So the model I was taking was, you know, a religious model that what people typically do is they they have a place where they go to renew. They step outside of the world, the utilitarian political world. That's the sacred space of the temple or the church, and then they do the imaginal play. A serious play so that they can reboot the developmental uh, the developmental enhancement or at least preservation right of the the the, the altered virtues and traits and so forth so, so, somewhere along the way it sounds like you're wanting to move from a temporary event to a community of practice yes and and i'm I, and it's very much a participant experimental thing that i'm doing not only a community of practice because i'm also doing stuff at the higher level what does it look like to, to network these communities together so they can mutually support and afford each other without that becoming an Iron Age hierarchy of some form? That's also something I've been talking so with that's, people. That's where my work is gonna to start to become very relevant to your work because I've spent a lot of time thinking about the intra-community dynamics long-term and the yeah. inter-community dynamics long-term and how to good, stabilize good. that. Yeah, good. Um, that's, that's a... That, that's a place where we make the transition pretty fully from probably what is the focus of your work to what's the focus of mine. Um, well, that's I, good. Because that's a nice place to transfer because uh, that's, I mean, 
my, my, my cup is more empty there. So it is more open to, uh, to being filled, if I can put it that way, because I'm really curious about, um, I meant that as a compliment for us, is I want to get a clear formulation of this problem because uh, I don't have a very clear, I don't have a very clear formulation. I mean, part of the problem is I don't see many other people wrestling with it. Or when they do, what they do is they, I mean, some of the people make good criticisms about sort of scalability issues. They don't mean that in the economic sense. Uh, Paul Vanderclay means that like in the religious sense, how, how are you gonna make this, you know, percolate through a community and permeate across generations, uh, yep. which is, yeah, I, and I take that, I have taken that criticism from him and Jonathan Peugeot very seriously. And I've been trying to uh, affect a, res a response, but I'm not clear about well, the problem. Let me, let me put it this way. Yeah. The nature of that particular problem is at least as difficult as the problem you've already done. Mm. And I don't doubt I, that. I don't doubt I, that. I would, I would literally treat it as essentially a it's, 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 it's getting back into the metacrisis thing, but it's characterized in a, in, a, in, a, in a more specific way. And that's part of why I was doing some of the refactorings I was doing earlier. But, the, but, but, I, but I, would, I would first of all, try to set the expectation with you or the expectation that you're having with yourself that to be the person that solves that specific problem may just be asking more than is humanly possible for any one yeah. of us anywhere in the world, right? So just... You know, if, if somebody says, well, you haven't solved this problem too, treat it as a kind of, yeah, well, that's not mine to do. You figure it out. Right? <laughs> okay. And when you get an answer, come talk to me, but don't, don't ask me to do it for you. Right. So I'm saying that in this particular case, that's something that I have been working on. I consider that to be uh, an area where I can be contributive. Right. Um, the, the other piece that I, that I think that, and this leads into the uh, to, to, to some of the other parts of it is, is that when we're thinking about the community part, okay, so remember I said there were two sections. I'm now transitioning into the, the second one. Yeah. Um, the, the, the piece there is, is, again, there's, guess what, another bound triple, which is having to do with uh, agreement structures or networks of agreement. Yes. Uh, Jordan may have introduced this language to you, but, you know, you know where yes. that came from, right? So, um, in, in this specific case, there's networks of agreement which themselves are upheld by and instantiated within networks of relationships. Yes. Right? Because agreements are only as strong as the relationship that underpins them, mm -hmm. fundamentally, right? Um, and then finally, the network of relationships is upheld by the network of communicative acts. Yes. Are you using that the way Habermas used it, is it, that term, the, the idea of communicative acts? I, I am, although again, not I, I. I won't claim that I understand Habermas so well that I would presume that I mean the same thing. But when I mean communicative acts, I believe that um, what what I what I'm intending by that, and I believe that he yeah. means the same thing, is that um, not just what we say to one another, but everything we are that we do yeah. with one another, just a complete presence. If I'm standing next to you, that's a communicative act, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, the communication and the communing, I, I talk about yeah. it as communication and communing, where communing is, and, and communing is not just passive presence, you are actively shaping each other in profound ways at a non-propositional level. That's right. Or participation in being there. That, that's correct. 
Correct. Ab absolutely. So if, if Habermas is meaning that, then I am as well. And I'm well, that's what I that's what I'm taking from Habermas, at least. Awesome. So we, we, we won't make an exegetical point here. We'll just say let's take that the, that's what we're talking about. So insofar as the totality of the relationship is defined by the, the summation of all of the communicative act. Then, in effect, when we're characterized the notion of goodness across this triple, we would say something along the lines of clear communication supports real relationships and real relationships support authentic agreements. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like if, if, well, it's, it, 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 <laughs> I'm appreciating that you're liking it. It's an axiomatic result, right? It's because yeah. of the nature of the triples that we're seeing these derivations. And to some extent, we're looking at axiom two relationships as characterizing the dynamics of how communication process emerges in the relational process. And again, how relational process emerges into agreement process, how agreement process upholds communicative act process, right? Because somewhere along the way, we made the agreement that the word dog refers to a furry animal with four legs that occasionally barks, right? Sure, sure. So somewhere along the way, we see this meta structure of axiom two holding the triple together. Right. And so when we're looking at uh, refactoring in the sense of uh, qualities fielded across the triple, we're basically saying, you know, what is it that characterizes the notion of communication such that relationship emerges? What is it that characterizes the nature of Good. relationship such Good. that agreements emerge? Yeah. And what characterizes Good. the nature of agreements that support the communication emerges? Right. Right. So right. Not, not just axiom two in the sense of identifying the sequence and the flow, but axiom two is identifying what is it that it characterizes the nature of how goodness can actually emerge at each of these levels and must actually do so in order for the thing to have integrity integras as one working together such that the process uh, actually coheres in the service of life. That's so, really good. I, I like what you just did there. That was very good. I liked those questions and I like the linkage of the questions. Well, I should hope so. I mean, you know, this, I, I know it to be good. <laughs> 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 no, no, I get that, but it's, I, I'm it's not, not just a, not just an opinion. It's it's a it's a theory, right? It's a theory that basically it's a theory of ethics. It's a theory of goodness actually applied to underpin the relationship between meaning, value, and purpose fundamentally. You see, these things aren't just words that I'm using. They're they're no, terms and a typology of a kind of yeah. hyper mathematics, yeah. right? It's a, it's a conceptual mathematics. Yeah, um, you're, you're 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 trying to get. A, you know, a grounding relationship between ethics and ontology. I, I appreciate that. And I think that in and of itself is a fundamental move. Can I, can I say something that might sound incredibly egotistic? Yes. I'm not looking for it. I found it. I know for a fact it's done. It's, it's, it's like, it's intense. It's really intense. Well, but, the, but it, I, I, it I, emerges I, I, a lot of really beautiful stuff. <laughs> so well, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, um, I, I at least think what you're saying is, I mean, I, I'm just hearing it, so I can't have the degree of conviction that you have. But yeah. right, uh, but I, I, I trust that what you're saying. Uh, right. What I can say in my response to it, when I said it was good, I didn't just mean, oh, that's a oh, that's a wonderful idea. I meant that strikes me as rationally plausible. And, that, and when I mean plausible, I mean it should be taken seriously. And that's the kind of normativity I bring in when I'm encountering ideas for the first time. I'm trying to go beyond that. I'm basically, you, you, you made the, the, the reason why I was even able to point this to this and, and to make the specific claim was because 
you talked about it as a relationship between ethics and ontology. And I'm basically saying it's not just a relationship between ethics and ontology. How would you characterize it then that goes beyond that? It's a relationship between ethics, ontology, and epistemology. In other words, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a structure that is at once all of these things and none of them in the sense that it is the deeper basis from which all three emerge. And so in effect, when I say I know something and I'm not making an opinion, I'm basically saying because the nature of epistemology itself is wrapped into the nature of ethics and ontology directly, then in effect, the notion of knowing here isn't just um, empirical or analytic, no, no. but it is something no. that is other than empirical and analytic and including and transcending both. And it is from yeah, that yeah. basis from which I'm actually speaking. Yeah, and uh, I think you might have misunderstood me. That's what I was trying to get at. I was, I was about to say that I see you going back beyond the Kantian thing to the, the kind of uh, framework that Gerson's talking about when he's talking about ancient epistemology. And it's like you're the way you're talking about it now in which knowledge is not some function of a belief. It's about, you know, it's, it's about coming into, it's a, the, the metaphor that replaces it is a, con a conformity, a contact with the good, that which lies before, beneath, beyond, and affords, right? The connection between the true, the, the good, and the beautiful, the epistemological, the ethical, and perhaps the ontological. That's what I was, I was about to say. Um, and, and that's what I was, because I've already heard that earlier on when, you, when, when I said, you know, the good, and you said the true, the good, and the beautiful, what's beyond them, and what makes the, their interaffordance possible. So I, I get that. What, 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 what I get, I guess what, for me, and this, and I think you agree with this, but let me ask it. For me, the, one of the fundamental differences before, if you compare after Descartes to before Descartes, is after Descartes, I don't have to go through any fundamental transformation to get at the deeper truths. I just have to have a method. Before Descartes, and this is clear in the Platonic tradition, I have to undergo fundamental transformations in order to come into right relationship conformity with the good. I can't get at it, and right? And so for me- It's, it's both, actually. I, I, I think to some extent that it's the, the, the beingness of it already holds it. And to come into cognition of it, we basically need to be it and become it. Yeah, we have to participate in it. Yes, very participate much. Participate in tuning the note. Yeah. So, so, so doing a lot for hands on, uh, on for me. The reason why I, I like I, I, again, I started with this started from a compliment. It wasn't a criticism. But what I was like, what do you mean then? Then by because at two places you've invoked clarity as an essential. There's the clarity of understanding, and now here's the clarity of the communicative act, which is not, I acknowledge, not just clarity of communication, but clarity of communing. And I get that and I really, really appreciate that. And that would be something I'd, I, I wanna hear more about. What does that, like, could you, could you explicate that a little bit more? That's where, I, that's where I wanted to zero in. Perfect. Well, I, I'm glad you did because you're actually anticipating the direction I would go anyways, right? So in other words, of the triple of uh, authentic agreement, relationship and uh, communication, most people try to figure shit out at the agreement level. They try to come up with the rules, right? Yeah. And then you have people who will try to manipulate things at the social level, 
by uh, you know, falsifying what's happening at the communicative level. So the first thing about the communicative level is, by the way, if we're gonna do anything, we need to start at the communicative level. So I'm looking yes. at community and communion, yeah. right? To be in community, to be in communion, to, to some extent, I've, I have to think about the principles and the practices of communication, mm-hmm. right? So that would be the emphasis that I would be leading to get to you're asking the question you just asked me, which by the way is right. awesome, you anticipated that. Secondly, um, when we basically are looking at what does it mean for clarity to be applied to communication? Now, this is a junction point and there's a whole lot of stuff that comes out of this. I can imagine, so, I can imagine. Right, so first of all, the way in which we think about ethics itself is partly modeled in terms of the dynamics of the communication channel. So what does it mean to have integrity in the communication channel? I don't mean that in the sense of tell the truth. I mean that in the sense of the communication channel works, right? Um, And so now we're looking at symmetry and continuity dynamics as being ways in which we characterize the communication channel. The symmetry dynamics were characterized by uh, Shannon's uh, information theory pretty well. The continuity stuff is is, is a, a lot more abstract that hasn't been described mathematically by anybody I know yet, but maybe I've overlooked it, who knows. But the point here is, is that if we're looking at what increases the integrity of the communication channel, and therefore as a side effect, increases the integrity of the source and the destination, the subjective and the objective, then the notion of ethics would be the summation or the conjunction of those three kinds of integrity increase. So the notion of clarity here isn't just that the signal that goes in and the signal that comes out is the same, i.e. that I have an underlying symmetry. It is to say that the channel itself has continuity in time and that the uh, energy exchange... You mean that the channel is self-protecting and self-propagating in some way? Is that what you mean? Yes, there's an autopoetic aspect to the channel. Right, right. Good, keep going, please. Um, and, and, and that basically has uh, a number of practical implications or, or principles that translate into practices. Uh, right, so that's yeah. one branch that comes out of it, okay? Yeah. Uh, another branch that, that, that sort of comes out of this is, is the notion that clarity isn't just uh, you and I understand one another, it's the ability to move through. So clarity isn't just that I can see through something, it's that I can move through it. And by move through it in this particular case, I'm saying that the channel itself or the dynamic of the protocol, which constitutes the communication channel, because I can't think about channels without thinking about protocol, that the dynamics of the protocol itself have a certain necessary form. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in this context, it would be something like I grant to you three rights, the right to speak, the right to be understood, and the right to know that you have been understood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't take these rights, but I can give them to you. I can't take these rights from you, but you can give them to me. Mm-hmm. And when it is the case that each of us gives to the other these three rights, then the conjunction of the six together is the necessary and the sufficient basis for communication to happen such that we can move through points of understanding and transformative wow. points of articulation. And anything less than that is not transparency. That's really interesting because. I'm not claiming this is identical what you're talking about, but there's a precursor in the, the practice that well, I call it actually dialectic into the logos, where people have to actually move through, like like uh, they propose something, they have to be, uh, they uh, basically they enact those principles. Like the, the, they can't 
they can't say anything of their own until they first uh, say back, have I, have, have I heard you? Have I understood you? And, and not, only, not only that superficial agreement, but it's active. They have to try and draw the person out. They not, not trying to impose their own ideas, but they have to like, can you tell me more about this? Can you tell me more? And, and is this what you're like? And, and so they have to enact those. And so what I'm saying is that's interesting because there might be that I, I, I'm a, the, the practice I'm talking about and I'm, I've been trying to develop with Chris and others is actually introducing people to precursors of the, of the thing you're talking so about. Let's, let's take it into the next level, right? Because now I'm yeah. able to bring explicit principle to this that now right. can refine the technique. So say I'm in the position where I'm attempting to assess as one of the speakers, I've just said something to the other person and they're now trying to demonstrate to me that they understood me because they're trying to, to, to meet yeah. the condition of that I know that I have been understood. Right. So how do I know that I have been understood? Well, if the person across from me says back to me verbatim what I said, I'll know that they've heard me, but I don't yeah. know that I've been understood. Right. Yeah. So then then you might say, well, and, and this is the point you were making. Um, they try to draw out. They, they, they come out with, uh, well, you know, I hear it like this and I hear that yeah. like that. Is that what you mean? Um, yeah. Is this the deeper thing you're trying to get to and so on and so forth? And that didactic process can over time eventually converge to my belief that you understand what I was trying to get at, but that's not the strongest. There's one more. Which is? By the questions you ask, I will know definitively what you do and do not understand. Mm -hmm. So in other words, what I basically do is I say something to you and then I watch what you ask. I watch what you do next. And what happens is, is that from the response you have, particularly if you're asking questions, I know where the limits of your knowledge are, because if you, if so, so say it's a, a board, right? And I put yeah. a dot in the middle of the board. This is what I say, right? And then yeah. if you say something back to me, it might be another dot here and there and so on and so forth. And I'm trying to see whether there's an adjacency, but I could yeah. skip all that altogether and say, ask me three questions. And if they ask three questions, and those questions are other places on the boards, it defines the limits of your knowledge Good. Such That's that the area of the space included in the middle ah, is for sure understood. Now I can know that for sure because you wouldn't know what question to ask yeah, unless yeah. you had understood specifically what it was that was relevant in the sense that you mean relevance. Yeah, yeah. That's good. That's very good. Okay. Right. That's very and good. by by doing all of this, so again, what I'm doing by 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 essentially constructing all these things away is I'm fast forwarding you through the questions that I've asked. And I'm noticing which questions you've and since answered. So then I can leapfrog again to the next level. So we've just, we've transitioned yeah. at this point, I think we're about eight levels away from where we started. So <laughs> it's been um, fun, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Actually, this is as far and as fast as anybody in this domain has come yet. Hmm. Just by the way, that's a compliment. That's a high order compliment. Okay. Thank you. Yet, like literally anybody I've talked to yet hasn't come to the level of coherency in the space that you have. Okay, and I mean everybody. I'm talking seriously here. So, in effect, when we're getting to this specific thing, I'm, I'm saying something along the lines of if the people in communication are trying to go for maximum clarity, it's going to focus on what questions they ask, not yes, what yes. statements they make or what directives they issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so now we're basically saying that clarity comes to clarity of good questions, 
So what creates clarity of good questions? So then we start to look at, again, Habermas, and what are the dynamics in which reason and, 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 and insight emerges, the, 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 the process itself, how does that happen? Well, I have two points of view, my two eyeballs, and they each see a two-dimensional field. And through this process, which I have called phase parallax, and other people have a different name for, but there's a, there's a sort of interference pattern that is created that allows me to construct a third dimension. Yes. yes. So visually, I basically can get uh, parallax to see how far away something is because of the triangle relationship that emerges and the angles and such. So essentially what happens is, is that we say, okay, if I'm talking to somebody and I have a point of view and they have a point of view, right? Because we're each different people and I find a way to see through their eyes through the communicative process. So in one sense, I'm holding my perspective and I can genuinely know that I've hold their perspective because of the questions that they ask. I now know where they stand, right? So in effect, from there, I can now overlay these two things and gain insight into the world in a way that I would not have been able to do by myself. This is what you were meaning earlier, I believe, when you said autodidactic will only get you so far. Well, it also goes to one of my defi defining criteria, one of the defining criteria I use for genuine dialogos. Both people admit that they get to a place that they could not have gotten to on their own. And they don't admit it, they, they, they recognize and appreciate that I've, I got to a place where I couldn't get, and you got to, a, and we did that together. For me, that's one of the ways in which, uh, that's a marker I give people of, how do you know if you're moving into the kind of thing I'm talking about? Understood. So but I, but the, point you made, the point you made about the question, I really, I want to savor that for a minute because I want to remember it, but this is recorded, so I'll be able to go back to it. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I've been trying to figure out about how to better get the, that the Socratic dimension in, uh, in that now way. Now you're looking at EGP technique. What technique? Ephemeral group process. Ah, right. So that's kind of where that has, because that's basically one of the directions in which we get to values discovery for governance yes. process, intra yes. and inter-community wise, right? So, you know, yeah. back to the question earlier, we we're talking about governance, but in the sense that we were looking at what is it that creates clarity in communication yes. and why clarity would be important. So part of what I'm getting at here is the degree to which clarity itself allows me as a, as a process through this insight process to move from a yes. two-dimensional perspective to a three-dimensional yes. one or yes. uh, an n-dimensional perspective to an n-squared yeah. one, right? Yeah. That, that to some extent, what I'm looking for is a dynamic that effectively not only characterizes what clarity would mean as far as practice and principles concerned, but what it means in the sense of what an outcome is, what outcomes yeah. it has. Yeah. So in, in, in this specific sense, I'm, I'm, I'm basically trying to answer the question of what does clarity mean in the context of communication? Yeah. I've outlined yeah. at, at this particular point, uh, uh, three separate branches as to what that means in this context. Yeah, no, I, I see this. I, this is very good. I like this a lot. Again, in so, the sense I was about earlier. So, so like in, well, maybe I'm just interrupting because I'm, 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 I'm interested in how does that address sort of this, the scalability? Uh, because That goes because, back to governance. Let me finish this part. Okay. So if we're looking at the degree of insight as being the characterization that we're looking for in the sense of what emerges, uh, the kinds of questions that are the right questions, 
right? Because yes. you're asking yeah. earlier, how do we know what the questions are? Why do we focus on the questions? So we've, we've talked about that a little bit, but now I'm basically saying, what is the method by which those questions are emerged? Basically, in the sense that I have two separate people, right? We can say, what is the reification power of insight? Okay. So in other words, how much insight as how much insight does the process create as a way of looking back at the process to identify yes. what are the key yeah. characteristics of the process that allow for higher degrees of insight or higher degrees of reification? So in this particular sense, what I'm basically concerned with is in the same way that we would might use a, a metaphor, for example, I'm looking at two things that are the farther apart, the better, the more brought together they are, the better, and the quicker that happens, the better. Because if I'm looking at reification power as a process rather than as a static metric, I'm looking at uh, what is the rate at which diversity and unity combine? Yeah, the rate of- If I have too little diversity, I might make it easier to have unity, but if I have uh, too little diversity, even though I have a lot of unity, I don't have a lot of insight. Whereas if I have a lot of diversity, but not a lot of unity, I don't get insight because I don't have enough coherence to essentially emerge clarity as to what it is that I've actually perceived in the insight way. So in no, this that's particular- very good, yeah. The idea that, of uh, the affordance of complexification, yes. That's the language I would use for that. So what is the basis by which this sort of process can happen? It depends upon the strength of the participants. Yeah. Because the strength is gonna be the characteristic by which they can hold substantial diversity and be able to still implement the kind of perspective seeking and holding that would allow for the emergence of the kinds of insights that matter. And then if, if it's, if it's by synchronous in the sense that, you know, I might have skill that I can basically see through your eyes at the same time I see through my eyes, but you might not have the skill to do the reverse. But if you sure. did, if you were able to play, so I, I can see from my eyes and from your eyes, you can see through your eyes and through my eyes. So you have insight and I have insight, but then we do the meta process of seeing through the insights of the other. Yes. yes. So now in a sense, I can construct a kind of uh, hyperbolic geometry that would allow for a reification basis that is substantially stronger than that which would occur if just one of the individuals had the necessary capacities. Yeah, I've been talking about this in the dynamics, uh, some of the work I've published on flow as an insight cascade, and how do I get an insight cascade, not between an individual and an environment between people, and what are some of the features of communication that uh, reliably predict uh, flow and allow you to afford the uh, flow with other people. So now we're talking about strength of the individual, which has to do with the degree to which the inward connection to self uh, self in the greater sense, what most people would call soul or spirit um, yes. and connection of self to world. And again, yeah. world in the sense as the objective totality, not in the sense of other, sure. other being other people. So if I'm looking at what creates clarity in the relationship to other, it's going to be on the basis of this triangle of connection to self and connection to world. So what is so, the depth so that creates connections in those spaces? So you, you're using a strength metaphor. And I wonder, I just want to the metaphor I've been using is a flexibility metaphor, meta-perspectival flexibility. Like, I use the word strength in a very specific way. It's, an, it's a, it's like, so when we think about power, for example, we're talking about a force overcoming a distance inverse in time, right. right? And so when we're talking about the power of a metaphor, it's the degree of diversity of the things connected, the degree of completion by which they have been connected, 
and the inverse of how long it took to do that. In this particular case, a lot of very powerful metaphors have been deployed. So in, in, that's in, interesting because in, in the metaphor literature that I published, and that's actually called aptness. Uh, that's, that's I'm sure word. they have names for it. I would prefer to use the word power because in this particular case, it connects back to the actual definition and the equations as seen in physics. You mean and the capacity so to do work? Is that what so you mean by it? It, it, in physics, it's taught the capacity to do work, and, and the aptness would be a measure of work in that sense. Yes, but yes. if I'm going to get to a definition of strength, what I'm basically going to do is I'm going to say, in the same way that work talks about actuality, strength talks about potentiality. So I can yes. fold the equation of power through the actuality, yeah, yeah. potentiality mirror to get what would be the equation of strength. So I think we're using it the same way because... I'm using I'm using flexibility drawn from my Tai Chi uh, expertise, where it means the well, I'm flexible. It doesn't mean sort of just this. It means how many moves are all, how many options do I have available to me? What are the real possibilities for me in this situation? The potentiality right? so, and optimizing for potentiality becomes a yes, sense of exactly. thing. That That's what she right? is. That's what she is basically. The Zen practices emphasize an awareness of potentiality. Uh, in ways that are balancing for people that have lived in the world of actuality for so long that they've I agree. become unbalanced because they don't notice how to optimize for potentiality also. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And so if we're looking at goodness, again, coming back to that from an ethical point of view, what makes a good choice in the sense of effectiveness? We're therefore characterizing it in the sense of explicitly um, the summation of all that is actual and the summation of all that is potential in product relationship with one another. So now I'm basically saying to live well and fully or to um, optimize both the consequence of choices that I've had and the capacity to make future choices. Yeah, yeah. I talk about this in the fundamentals of the relevance realization. about the, the notion of self as yeah. basically being the product of all of your past choices as the product of all of your possible choices, all the things you could do yeah. and yeah. all the things you have done, right? Yeah. That, that, that product that. relationship is, is the thing that characterizes the notion of self at an essential level. And oh, by the way, all of this connects back to axiom one. So in this sense, if we're yeah. looking at clarity, again, trying to, to identify what are the things that are effectively gonna create the most clarity, I'm looking at, again, as you said, if I'm gonna look for maximum of power, right? In the sense of re resolving power, resolution power, in the sense of insight, reification power, I'm going to basically be basing that on the strength of the participants, i.e. as uh, cells that have in the sense that you're describing the capacity for flow and for flexibility and so on and so forth. Yes, so exactly. what is the nature of strength in this sense? It's a capacity to remain the same despite overwhelming forces over long periods of time. So it's proportional to time, proportional to force, but inversely proportional to change. Right? A person that's strong can be strong without doing anything at all. They're just standing there and they have the capacity to, to move if they need to, but aren't obligated. So, so power, in order to be known as power, must be demonstrated. But strength, to be known as strength, has to be felt from within. So if I'm looking at what are, what are the capacities that create this sort of strength, I'm looking at what are the capacities that create inward connection, integrity, uh, Safety in the sense of response to the world, ability to respond to the world, i.e. they're very facile, they're very skilled, they're polymath, right? Um, they know how to work with their hands and they know how to work with people, right? So in effect, what happens is, is that it's this 
spiritual characteristic, this, uh, you know, inner inner knowing enlightenment sort of thing, plus the chop wood carry water factor that allows for coherent negotiation of complicated social spaces in the sense-making process, such as the one that we're describing, as in how do we solve the meaning crisis or how do we solve the meta crisis and what are the skills and capabilities needed to actually do that? So, so I can I ask here. a clarification question, Glenn? Uh, yeah. just so, I want. so I, I, the, why, why are you like, why is the, why is that like, why is that being defined as a capacity to resist change? It, it seems like it's a capacity to accommodate change. Accommodate's uh, fine. Accommodate's good. I mean, it's it's essentially, yeah. you know, the, the, the stick metaphor, right? I have one stick, I break it, right? I have a bundle of sticks, I can't break it. So right, in other right, words, right. It, 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 it affords the force, right? right they right. bend a little, you know, they, yeah. they, 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 they move, but you let the force go and they go back to their original shape. So now you can start talking about things like Young's modulus, right? The stress versus strain ratio. Right, stress so, I, would be the imposed force. The strain would be the permanent change that results. So I, I, I get, I'm getting that. But what I, what I'm wondering about is, you know, uh, the idea of, you know, how evolvable a system is. Um, so very, the, the, the things I'm talking about are pure principles. Right, right. So that, that these are clarification questions. They're not challenge questions. So. I'm trying to get the what's the ontological level at which you're saying we understand the strength of the self in its capacity to not change, because I know that you're not meaning we don't acquire virtues, we don't acquire skills, we don't acquire, uh, we, 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 we don't become wiser than we are. So what is it that you mean isn't changing? What isn't changing? The, the notion of integrity being to act as one together. So in other words, there's a, there's a spiritual quality that's being referred to here. So, so my, my integrity as an autopoetic cognitive agent psych is not is not disintegrating in some fashion. Is that what you that yeah. that's it? Okay, that's all I wanted to get. I, yeah. I don't have any I don't have any challenge. I just wanted to understand. Well, let's let's just take it the, the rest of the way, right? The thing that makes uh, Jesus a spiritual figure is they nailed him to a cross. He endured enormous pain. And through all of that, he basically says, Father, they know not what they do. He didn't lose integrity right? Mm -hmm. He's still himself throughout all of this. He didn't give up anything, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, the, the laughing Buddha, right, has these transcendent states of joy and, and, and like complete suffusiveness of bliss and still remains himself. He doesn't become lost in some sort of crazy new age nirvana. He's, he's still a human being at the end of it all. Yeah. Those are yeah. spiritual qualities. That's, that's the essence of what makes those spiritual qualities. This, this reminds, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm doing it right now and I'm reading it deeply because I come back to, the, this is another person I come back to repeatedly. My son's doing it with me. This reminds me very much of Spinoza's notion of kinetis in a profound way. And that, that, that um, so, and, and the way he similarly uh, tries to derive blessedness from that. Uh, I like, and I, 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 I'm very attracted to that because it fits into it's a way of talking about the spirituality of the self that does not make it antithetical or non-biological. It allows you to see a, a, a continuity into the biological domain. Because one of the problems I think we have with our spiritual traditions is they have tended to elevate and separate spirituality from biology. Right. So now we're basically looking at the, uh, the next piece, which is how do we move from individual process to collective process? Because even if I have 
a truly enlightened individual, well, they went through, you know, 20 or 30 years of life becoming enlightened. They enjoy it for a little while and they die. And the rest of the community is basically saying, what the fuck? It doesn't help us a bit. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so in effect, there's a, there's a sense here in which individual enlightenment is not enough. We have to go beyond oh. that. Right. So, so, so now we're looking at what does it mean for a community to be enlightened? What is the dynamics that are involved in the communicative process? Yeah. And again, we're going back to clarity here, but what are the kinds of things that in the communicative process would move it beyond just the individual process of insight and how that emerges to maybe be values discovery or good choice discovery or creation of new vision for the community or creation of a new strategy or so on. What we're now looking at is what are the dynamics on the process of communication that would basically have both literal elements and symbolic elements, right? We mentioned spirituality as an integrity piece, but you notice I used it in a very literal way, but then I was able to incorporate directly by reference the uh, connotative elements and to say why it was the case that all of the connotative elements and the literal elements happened to correspond with one another. Because guess mm -hmm. what? In language, we're basically looking at the symbolic and the literal as being one of those things that have an axiom one relationship with the conjugation between them, right? So in effect, mm -hmm. We're not just concerned in the communicative process with just the logic of argument. No. We're also concerned with the dimension of care. What is yes. the empathy? What is the compassion? What is the degree to which the tonality of the process? And oh, by the way, I know I have been hard on you in this conversation, but nonetheless, that the tonality of the process emerges <laughs> a new capacity for forward motion. Yeah, that's so that, that's part of the reason why I've been pushing because to some extent, Without that, I wouldn't have been able to know how to help you the most, right? So in a sense, it's the question of not just how do I uh, help you to solve a problem you're trying to solve, which would be just an analytic information, yeah, yeah. logical yeah. construct, right? Uh, it's also the dimension of that I care what you care about. I recognize you're caring. I see what you see. And I also see this as being meaningful to me in my life and to the larger world, right? not just to other people, but to the sense no. of self and the sense of environment, right? Back to back to the self world and other again. So if I'm basically taking that and I'm saying to myself, okay, given this, not only is it that I'm going to be concerned with the compassion in the sense of how you're expressing it, I'm concerned with the compassion of how I'm expressing it. So not just how do I show you compassion and empathy, right? But also, am I being compassionate in the way that I'm being compassionate? Mm. Right? And am I for sure knowing that the way in which I'm being compassionate is itself actually good? Doesn't yeah. just look good or feel good, because compassion yeah. would feel good, and maybe the argument would look good. But I have to know somehow what is the reification basis by which I can trust that the particular exercise that I'm leading you into here isn't some form of addiction, for example, right? Because that can look good and feel good, maybe, right? Mostly feel good, not always look good. But, you know, you can have the good sales thing, you know, the product that you can buy that, you know, everybody sees that you're high status because you're wearing the right kind of shoes or carrying the right kind of pocketbook. But if you're basically saying, you know, what feels good, and we're talking about addiction, right? Then somewhere along the way, I'm going to basically say, how do I distinguish between the compassion the compassion for how that process of compassion is itself expressed as a process and mm -hmm. the underlying ontological, ethical, and epistemic basis by which I can literally know those things to be the case as themselves. So 
in this specific sense, what I'm basically saying when we're talking about the communicative process, I'm saying, yes, it involves literal elements and it involves symbolic elements. And here's what some of the symbolic elements look like and why they are important, because they are just as much a manifestation of the underlying ethics, uh, axiality, so to speak, ontology and epistemology that are the ground of the system itself and literally the very basis by which we come to understand theory of ethics at all as the principles of effective choice. So does that symbolic dimension, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling for a verb here, but does it, does it exact it, does it exact a lot, does it exact meaning into the domain that people talk about when they're talking about the sacred? Of course it like, does. Right. Can't okay. not do that. I and mean, one of the essays that I put up on MFLB.com recently, which by the way, you might want to pay attention to, um, yeah. is, is, is essentially an argument, uh, the worth of the world, basically. This was in a uh, TEDx I did uh, years ago, uh, basically saying, you know, if you actually think about this on a sort of cosmological level, the value of this planet is enormous, right? I mean, we tend to, as a species, think that we should make choices on the basis of economic realities, right? If you talk to an economist, they say, well, you know, an economy is sort of like how we do trade-offs and finite limits and so on and so forth. And basically say, all right, let's take that at face value. We're going to have, you know, a notion of value and and, and, and so on, in an economic exchange, what is the total economic transit of everything that happens on the entire planet on an annual basis? Well, spitballing, we come out to something on the order of around $350 trillion per year. Could be much higher, but it probably won't be more than, say, four or five times, or maybe within an order of magnitude of that, right? But if we look at from a purely, um, you know, computational complexity perspective as to the unicity, like the notion of values based upon a notion of unicity and, and yeah. uh, fungibility without duplicatability and so on, right? That, that in effect, what you end up with is this notion of what constitutes how we think about what value is. And when I apply that to the earth and the ecosystem and the life of the totality of what it would cost to, as an engineer, replace all of this, yes, I can't have a value for the earth that is anywhere less than one quadrillion quadrillion dollars. Yeah. It basically means that the notion of the value of the earth is way in excess of the total economic output, such that the total economic output is not even a rounding error. It's, it's off by something like nine orders of magnitude. Twelve. Well, that means sorry, 12 the, economic system is, the economic system is not, if I understand you correctly, it's not doing what it actually purports to do. It's Precisely. actually not a metric of the value. Exactly. And this is the meaning crisis because... If I take the value of the world as actually being one quadrillion quadrillion dollars, it's effectively saying like the actual value of this planet is in any sense actually kind of greater than our concept of value for even any God or deity we have ever thought of, right? Yeah, yeah. And then in effect, what happens is, is that to, to, to some realistic notion that yeah. to regard the earth as anything other than sacred, if we're going to call gods and goddesses sacred, but we've now just identified a category of embodied value that is substantially in excess to the greatest imagination of that we have ever had as a species, individually and collectively, that the notion of sacredness is no longer abstract. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I suppose in a very minor sort of way, the difference between the sacredness of the value of the earth as it actually is and the value that we are supposing that we're making our choices on when we're doing strategic uh, leading with strategy or 
uh, narrative strategy or leadership strategy or strategic leadership or any combination of those kinds of things is absolutely fucking ridiculous. It's yeah, a lie, right? It's not recognition of the underlying truth. And this is what the meaning crisis is. Mm -hmm. It's the ethical gap between what we should do and ought to do and what we are actually doing. Mm -hmm. The capacity that we have to have an impact on the life ecosystem of this particular world and our failure to recognize our roles of being stewardship of the divine. So there's a is, symmetry point here. We're, yes. not, we're also not getting the proper value of the, the negative value of the destruction we're performing. Precisely, oh. right. Yeah, the, when, when I'm looking at things like existential risk, okay? So like, like I came across this category of existential risk that had been overlooked, like, Really? There's a category here and everybody I ask about this, I ask, I say two questions. Is it plausible and has anybody thought about this? I paid people, I actually paid $1,000 for a consulting session with, 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 with as high up in the expertise of this particular field of, of particle physics as I could get and asked straight out, here's the scenario. Is it plausible? Have I made some huge mistake? And they basically at the end of it said, nope, you're thinking you know, about about these particular issues is actually coherent. There's nothing wrong when you're using an enthalpy calculation in the place where it actually belongs. And mm -hmm. then I basically says, is anybody thinking about this? And they say, no, that is a horrifying, right? Because it's a horrifying sequence of affairs because it puts to this specific thing. Okay, so some people, some group is essentially gonna get uh, you know, academic prestige. They're gonna have their name on the paper. They might get a Nobel prize. A whole bunch of governments get to say they're investing in something which they think is going to be uh, maybe great for humanity because we learned something, but all of them are secretly hoping for some new, new weapon, maybe, right? Or the capacity to build, I don't know, starships or something. And then they basically are taking risks that could potentially, without anybody really knowing for sure, because the math only allows us to get maybe eight digits of certainty, but when we're actually looking at the value of the Earth we really yeah. ought to have something like 33 digits worth of certainty, but no, we're going to do, we're going to roll the dice on eight, eight digits worth of certainty against a value that's 30 digits of certainty because some ignorant people couldn't do philosophy. That's a very good argument for reverence, the virtue of reverence. Yes. I, unfortunately, I have to go soon. Um, where, uh, Understood. I've actually reached kind of a point of completion. I have maybe a, uh, just a handful of wrapping up things. Okay. The transition from individual awareness of sacredness to community awareness of sacred is important. And it has to do with the kinds of clarity in the communication process taken all the way up to the level. It basically requires greater strength and skillfulness on the part of the participants to actually incorporate the compassion pieces. I feel like I'm reinventing Buddhism. Right. Yeah. But, the, but the notion here is, is that without that clarity of communication to include both the literal and the symbolic and not yes. have the symbolic or the literal be used as vectors of power, but actually become embodiments of strength, that the particular conjunctions that are associated on their axiom one between power and strength actually solve as a kind of address of the narcissal issues I was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. Right. Way back three levels of conversation ago. Right. Where you're basically saying, yep, I'm aware of this issue and we're trying to deal with it this way. And I said, here's some of the dimensions downstream of that. So in this particular case, what I'm basically suggesting is, is that the future course, as far as our education process is largely going to be focused on not just increasing awareness of the ways in which things go wrong and the value of what it means to have it go right and therefore the value lost if it goes wrong, 
But to have that live at the community level and to recognize that the process of creating good community is much going to be on the basis of the degree to which we have higher levels of strength in our care and compassion first for one another and for our communicative process to be clear and to emerge that and also for that particular process to become the basis of principle and practice for the action of the community as a community and that this is the way forward. And that what I'm thinking about governance to some extent depends upon this level one reification even happening in order for level two, such as things like EGP to really manifest. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even talking about the stuff downstream of that yet. But at this point, I think you can get the sense that the trajectory that I'm working on, the trajectory you're working on are not only closely aligned, but to some extent, maybe uh, not just uh, symbiotic, but necessarily so. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with right. that recognition. I would, I, I share that recognition. Yes, very much. Okay. I hope that this has been helpful to you. Uh, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. You said you were pushing me, but uh, I didn't feel it that way. I felt it, I felt it as fellowship. I didn't feel it as anything other than that. Good. I'm glad to, th I'm glad for that reflection. I, I knew that I was moving things more quick. I felt that I was moving things more quickly, harder than I otherwise would. Uh, Tim was cut off at least twice. And I'm apologizing for that also. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. Seems like we're getting to the point where we're recognizing alignment, which, you know, um, like I told you so. <laughs> Conversation's beginning as far as I'm concerned. So I do, have a me. I do have a request then, Tim. I would like, if I have both of your permission, I would like to put this out on my channel. I think this was exemplary in many dimensions. And I would like the people, I would like to put it out as an episode of Voices with Raveki. Um, if you're not I think that would be best. That, that, that's fine. But I would, I mean, you're going to put it out on your channel. That's fine. But well, I would maybe like not. I think that would be best actually for it to, um, I think it would be best to, for it to go on yours. And if I publish I, it, you know, one day on VoiceCraft. Uh, I think it that, resonates with a kind thing. of profound integrity of what I'm trying to do and Voices with Raveki. Uh, it's exemplary in many dimensions and, and I would very much, I'm, it's a request, I would very much like it to be there. Um, Can I ask a calibration question? Sure. Since you are pretty uniquely positioned, this was something I asked in a group yesterday. Um, given that you have wide experience of a lot of different thinkers in the field, both historically and presently, um, what's the degree of unicity that you experience in the particular content and method that I'm presenting to you as comparative to all of the other stuff that you've experienced? Um, I think, and I hope this is the right adjective, I find a kind of metaphysical clarity in the way you mean it and coherence i see other people and i'm trying to compliment both you and them and i'm not trying to set myself up as some god adjudicating right no i'm, I'm just asking about your opinion your, your, yeah. your experienced opinion yeah, okay fair enough then given given that qualification um i i find that your the metaphysical clarity of what you're doing is is, is quite is profound in a way that i find rare. Um, I find many people that I'm talking to on this trajectory, I think, and, and uh, different ways, but 
I think it's clear to me that in many ways you have thought about this more deeply than almost everybody I've talked to. Um, now that doesn't mean that's not a, a, a criticism of people back. A lot of the people I talked to have thought about this deeply, but there's um, this isn't the right word for us, and you'll know why it's not the right word. But it's the closest word I had. There's a formalism that you have that I right that I, I, I that I find very rare. That brings a kind of rigor that I deeply appreciate. You know that formalism isn't the right word, but that's the word I'm using to as a as a placeholder right here. I actually think it's okay. I'm fine with that okay. word. Okay. Yeah. I, I I could have a higher level of rigor if the need was required for it. Sure. And I, I think that, that part of the thing that I'm I'm trying to evaluate a little bit as far as unicity is concerned is that not very many people would even know that that was needed. Even fewer would know that that was hard. Even fewer would know that that was especially hard in this topic space. Yeah. And even fewer would understand the degree to which the self-descriptive capacity not only creates reification of the first order, but of the second and the third, which so far as I'm aware, historically has never before occurred. Mm. So in that sense, yes, and more so, but it's hard for me to tell the degree to which the awareness of that is evident in any other person. Well, I could, I, I, I was, I was cautious to say all I can give you is my educated opinion. Um, Fair enough. And, it helps. But I do, I do think that I think there's fertile ground in the community that has gathered around my work for this, for this conversation. I think I can also say that with a significant degree of confidence. Well, we'll see how, I, whether there's enough interest for that to happen. Well, I mean, it, the, the, I mean, you, there is. There's, confounding, there's also confounding variables, right? There's, right, interest is also driven by, you know, familiarity biases and- Availability as well, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Understood, all right. Back to uh, planning. I know you have to go. Um, were there any other wrapping thoughts on any of anybody else's part? I don't have any. I'm very, very happy and appreciative for this this conversation. Uh, uh, and uh, that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Thank you, Tim, for putting this together. Thank you, John, for willingness to. Uh, take the risk of spending the time to do it. Well, I mean, you had already earned my trust. So when you have trust in a person's character, the the the, the risk is tolerable. <laughs> That's good. Yes. <laughs> Clearly, obviously, yes. Good, glad. All right. All right. So, Tim, if you can, uh, like of I course. say, it's to me. And uh, I'll make it available probably next week, actually. Yeah. All right. And both of you, if whatever you want in the description notes, linkage, make sure to take time, reflect. This is an opportunity, a doorway, potentially. You know, let's try and use it as wisely as possible. I'm, I'm just curious to know whether anybody's interested in the contents of MFLB.com and whether I should put more content up um, or how quickly I should focus on doing that and so on. Um, that would probably be the only thing that I would hope would be in the description. Other than that, I trust your description to be whatever's right. Okay. Yeah.
I, I hear that. Send Tony. me whatever recommendations you have too, please, Tim. Just yeah, send me a link um, when it is posted so I can link to it. Sure, of course. If I can, if I can make a request um, for another conversation, I I would feel to send links or to put something into the description and in that sense to make the invitation that I would possibly want to make would be probably be more appropriate for me to be more of a part of the conversation and to do so. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that. I had a lot um, that I was trying to do and I realized that was my error. Well, I, you know, we've spoken about this before. I, I see these conversations as 10, 12. I mean, there are hundreds of hour long conversations in contexts that aren't yet present. And so for me, this participation is not just one of this conversation, but in the meta conversation and in the emergence of the context enabling further seeing and knowing of each other. You know, I have deep appreciation for both of your works. Um, and for those parts where I would feel there is music to add that might initially sound discordant, but nevertheless, I would hold to as my own, in some sense, sacred form of necessary contribution. I, I would ask for the trust that the resolution of that and the integration of that is something we can undergo together. I, in fact, I believe that the, the next steps I see on the horizon to take actually necessitate that. Count me in. Beautiful. I'll do that, John. Thank you both. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider sharing them or leaving a review, and perhaps also to consider supporting it on patreon.com slash voicecraft. It will help sustain the podcast, build the network, and make possible more community events and educational resources.